PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. The following PTJ podcast is the Stepping Forward with Gait Rehabilitation Symposium, which took place at the American Physical Therapy Association's 2010 Combined Sections Meeting on February 19, 2010, in San Diego, California. The symposium honors Dr. Jacqueline Perry and her many invaluable contributions to gait rehabilitation. My name is Kathleen Ganley, and on behalf of the neurology section, I am thrilled to welcome you to this session, Stepping Forward with Gait Rehab. We'd like to first recognize the sponsors, Drake Foundation, uh, for this for, for sponsoring this session and encourage you all to go by the exhibit hall and visit, visit their booth, and, and please give them, extend our uh, thank you to them for sponsoring this session. So at this time, it is an absolute honor to introduce Becky Craig, uh, the, the editor of the Journal of Physical Therapy of PT Journal, and she will then introduce the, the speakers herself. So thank you for attending this morning, and thank you, Dr. Craig. Good morning. Is this wonderful? Let me begin by saying that there's this person at this table with the red suit on by the name of Dr. Jacqueline Perry. So we are so honored that she's here. This is true. This is a dream come true. So thank you. I'm just going to be very brief, and I can't, is there anyone here in this room who's never heard of Jackie Perry? One person, that's it, Jackie. It's very impressive. So um, I'm going to introduce the two people who were really the persons that put together this special issue. One is Sarah Mulroy, who is a physical therapist with a PhD, who's the director of the pathokinesiology laboratory at Rancho Los Amigos. And the other is Janice Eng, who is a PT and OT and a PhD, professor of physical therapy. She just won Canada's Jonas Salk Award. Um, and um, she's also an editorial board member. So Janice and Sarah are really the people behind this very special, special issue. Um, when I went out to visit California in, a couple of years ago, Sarah Mulroy said, you know what a fest shrift is? And I said, nope, have no idea. And she said, well, Dr. Perry is going to be 90, and it would be a really nice thing if we could develop, do you think it would be possible if we could have some articles to honor Dr. Perry? And I said, what a terrific idea. Um, and so the February issue of PTJ really is to honor Dr. Perry. A Festriff is a celebratory publication. It's to celebrate someone who's done so much. And as you see, there were 60 authors and 12 spectacular articles that were easy to, for Janice and Sarah to have authors say, of course I want to participate in this special issue to Dr. Perry. And so I hope you've all seen the issue. Um, it's at www.ptjournal.org. 
It probably arrived in your mailboxes, um, but we really encourage you to look at it online. It's spectacular. The pictures are wonderful. They come from um, artists at Rancho as well. So with this, I say happy birthday, Dr. Perry. Since we're a little bit late, I won't make us all sing, but I really do want to honor him. So this is Dr. Perry with a little tiny arrow. Can you see where she is over here in the back row to the far right? This is Dr. Perry. Dr. Perry was a physical therapist, um, went to the Army school, so was at Walter Reed Army General Hospital, and was a physical therapist for approximately five years. And then that was just the beginning. As many of you know, many of you know Dr. Perry as an orthopedic surgeon. We think of her certainly as an expert in gait analysis, but she's also a scientist, an author, and lecturer, and most importantly for physical therapy, she is our friend. So I really do love this lady, as you can tell. When you look back at her history, um, she has been associated with and helped garner so many different people. I think you have to stop for a minute and think about being a female going to medical school in the 50s and then think about being a female and being an orthopedic surgeon at that time. And yet, although she was scary because she always demanded us to tell her the answers correctly, she was always a very gentle person beneath that scary exterior. And when we look at the people with whom she's associated with, Vernon Nickel is a person that at least um, is attributed as being responsible for developing the halo. And so here's Dr. Perry and Dr. Nickel. And there's Dr. Perry working with Dr. Nickel. And these were all provided by um, Sarah Mulroy. And then David Sutherland. At least when I think of Dr. Sutherland, I think about a person who was very involved in gait analysis in children and contributed much understanding to the movement of children with disability. Um, so then you say, okay, well, polio, That's we understand that, spinal cord injury. But when you look at the publications, and there are over 400 publications that Dr. Perry has, I've never seen a CV as thick and as meaningful as Dr. Perry's. She's worked and written about patients with amputation, arthritis, cerebral palsy, limb fracture, peripheral nerve injury, polio, spinal cord injury, and stroke, and I'm sure that's not all. She has really dedicated her career to movement. So, you know, we, we think that we're finally understanding that our scope of practice is movement, and we talk about moving forward, and we talk about the ICF and its importance as a, a theoretical framework. Dr. Perry has been a person who has emphasized movement and function throughout her career. And she's so famous that they named a building after her at Rancho Los Amigos. And I have to tell you, it's, if you haven't been to Rancho, you should go, not only to meet Dr. Perry in the Gate Lab, but also just to see this historic part of physical therapy history. She's won a ton of awards, but she's won physical therapy awards as well, including the Golden Pen Award, which is uh, recognized by the, the Journal for Physical Therapy, the Helen Hislop Award, which recognizes writing such as her book, 
Um, the Stephen Rose Award, which is a good research, the best research article uh, in the JOSPT. And thank heavens, we made her an honorary life member of the American Physical Therapy Association. <clears throat> but everybody else wants to claim her too. So California made her the physician of the year. <clears throat> Whatever she's doing, wherever she's going, she's always working. I don't know if you can see this, but there she is in her hiking clothes with a laptop on her, on her lap, working. Um, regardless, again, of what, what one thinks um, about this huge body of work, I think what we focus on, at least in physical therapy the most, is the work that she's given us related to gait analysis. And she's received a Lifetime Achievement Award for her work in gait. This is her with a woman with polio. Um, she... The laboratory that she and Sarah Mulroy are in is an incredible laboratory uh, for movement analysis. But whether she's in that fancy lab or whether she's with a patient in the gym doing gym rounds, her focus is always on movement. What surprised me, that one thing I didn't know about, was her, the role that she tried to, uh, no, she tried, that she played in pushing physical therapists. So in 1965, she said students must be challenged to think and to analyze and solve problems. They must be encouraged to form opinions and to be able to support them when opposed. They must develop a sense of responsibility to create and organize, not just learn to do as told. You know, and here we have a vision of 2020, and she was telling us that in 1965, all right? So she's been pushing us for a very long time. So thank you, Dr. Perry. On behalf of physical therapists and engineers and surgeons, you have been terrific. And it's such an honor to have this special issue in your name. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Janice Singh, and I'm delighted to be here today. I was really um, pleased when uh, Becky Craig invited myself and Sarah Melroy to co-edit this special issue of physical therapy in honor of Jacqueline Perry, and, and extremely tickled think that she's able to attend as well. Just a note, um, in terms of the presentations, um, they're downloadable at uh, the link below, www.rehab.ubc.com. J-E-N-G. If you go to the CSM website, it'll also tell you to go to this link as well. So you can get there as well from there. And all the PDFs of the upcoming presentations, the four presentations, are there at that link. So please take a look. And of course, if you want the fuller versions, you can just go to the issue of physical therapy and all of them will be there. So walking is an important goal of physical therapy. And I couldn't help but put some of our pictures from Vancouver here without any snow of walking. Um, individuals, go, individuals undergoing rehab often say that walking is one of their most important goals of recovery. And with this in mind, it's not surprising that physical therapists spend a lot of their time and effort assessing gait and retraining gait. Walking ability has important implications for health. It has uh, poor walking performance is related to osteoporosis, heart disease, falls, and discharge in nursing homes. 
And it's not surprising that most quality of life measures also have a component of a walking in them. So in our special issue, we have 12 papers, uh, which we have called Stepping Forward with Gait Rehabilitation. And they cover a spectrum of different conditions from uh, stroke and spinal cord injury, as well as some on cerebral palsy and Parkinson's and older adults. And as I said, you can go to the February issue on the PTJ website, and they'll all be there for you to take a look at. The unifying theme of this issue is that they all advance and look at future directions in gait assessment and rehabilitation. This particular special issue starts out with one paper looking at theory, and probably some of the theories that you actually learned when you went to school. And we'll hear about some of those theories in a thought-provoking paper by Dr. Art Coe today. The other emphasis that we have a series of papers in this issue on technology, whether it's body weight support treadmill training or computer simulations, and we'll hear about some of those papers today as well. We also have some low-tech papers, one looking at elliptical training, something that you'll find in your community center. Another uh, emphasis of the paper is looking at outcome measures, and some of the outcome measures have really tried to look at measures that are meaningful to individuals. One of them, for example, looks at the number of steps that one takes in the actual community, so not in your laboratory, not in your hospital. And another one looks at the combination of using virtual reality to look at shopping and walking, something perhaps some of you have done in the last few days. And lastly, several of the papers look at innovative treatments, many which physical therapists have played a key role in these papers. So I'm pleased that we have four speakers from this special issue here today. Each will talk about 30 minutes, and we'll take about five minutes of time after each presentation for questions. And we actually have time at the end, about 15 minutes for general questions um, that you can ask to the panel. So at this time, I'd like to introduce Dr. Art Coe. He's a professor of mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering at the University of Michigan. His research interests are in human walking, balance, and movement, and he directs the Human Biomechanics and Control Laboratory. Some of his interests include prosthetic design, neural control of muscles, and energetics of walking. And I just will add one more thing. He, I actually met Art when he was a postdoc, and at that time, many years ago, he was at the Dow Neurological Institute in Portland working with a physical therapist at that time, Faye Horak. So please welcome Dr. Art Coe. Why should we talk about the uh, dynamic, dynamic principles of gait? Well, I think it's worth talking about because uh, if you look at uh, what's been happening in uh, the past 50 years as far as the textbooks go, uh, all of the major textbooks say that uh, the principles of gait are uh, determined by six main principles, the six determinants of gait. And uh, this appears in most of the major scientific and uh, clinical textbooks of today. But uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, there's some refinement going on in these principles. And uh, I'm going to tell you that there are essentially uh, uh, some changes in how we interpret the six determinants of gait. Now, these determinants were originally thought to, to uh, be characteristics of gait that you can observe 
uh, in normal walking, and the, their purpose was thought to reduce the, the displacement of the body center of mass. And then that was thought, in turn, to reduce metabolic energy expenditure. Well, in the past 10 years or so, uh, there have been a number of papers showing that a lot of these features actually do not truly contribute to reducing the center mass displacement. So several of these papers have, uh, have indicated that this uh, reduction does not really occur due to these features. And then more recently, there have been several papers that have examined walking with intentionally reduced center mass displacement. And these have found that, uh, in fact, walking with less center mass displacement actually causes an increase in energy expenditure. So that means that we need to refine our way of looking at uh, gait. We need to uh, e examine why uh, the energy cost actually goes up when you reduce center mass displacement. It appears to be because when you walk that way, you need to bend your knees more during the stance phase, and then that requires very high torques about the knee, and, uh, and that costs energy. So here's a, uh, a problem. The six determinants of gait are not really supported analytically or experimentally. And so we need to address the problem a different way. And I think a, a very important lesson is that whatever theories that we come up with, we really need to test them, and best to, re to test them repeatedly. Uh, today I'm going to tell you about uh, an approach that has been growing in the research world over the past 10 years, and it's called uh, the dynamic walking approach. And in this approach, uh, we view the uh, legs as pendulums. The stance leg acts like an inverted pendulum, and the swing leg acts like a, uh, a normal pendulum. And the coupled motions of these two uh, can actually produce most of a, a walking cycle by themselves. And there's a crucial aspect to this, which is uh, this can produce a single support phase, but once the foot hits the ground, there's a collision which can actually trigger the next step. And uh, this is uh, called dynamic walking because it's the dynamics of the limbs that are actually producing, are responsible for virtually all of the walking motion. So this is a, uh, a linkage of uh, some pieces of metal, and there are no motors or computers or anything. And you can see that if this linkage is set up in just the right way and allowed to descend a gentle slope, that it can produce the walking motion by itself. This was originally called passive dynamic walking, but of course, walking involves active control as well. And uh, so including both the active and passive components together, we now just call this dynamic walking. So here's what we're going to talk about today. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the mechanics of dynamic walking. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about stability. And then uh, Janice asked me to talk about clinical applications. And I have to warn you that I'm an engineer and a basic researcher. So uh, when we talk about clinical applications, maybe we can refer to that as a comedy portion of the uh, presentation. Uh, but as far as the mechanics go, uh, there are two b basic ideas I hope to get across. One is that collisions cost energy when the foot hits the ground. And then the best way to put energy back into the body, into the system, is by pushing off with the trailing leg just before heel strike. Uh, and then we'll also talk about stability, and I hope to convince you that there may be aspects of the stability of walking that are naturally controlled just through from the dynamics of the legs. 
Okay, so let's talk about the mechanics. Collisions cost energy. The idea is that when the foot hits the ground, the center, body center of mass has to be redirected. So when you're near the, nearing the end of a step before heel strike, your body center of mass is moving forward and down. And then when you uh, start the next step, your center of mass has to be moving forward and upward. So that change in direction, we claim, is going to cost you some energy. Uh, and where does that energy uh, change happen? Well, the leading leg, the front leg, uh, actually has to perform negative work. It has to absorb energy. And then we think that the best way to push, to put energy back into the system is by pushing off with the trailing leg right before that heel strike. And then this is a, a very simple stick model that is meant to illustrate this idea. So you can see uh, the legs swinging. One leg is a, a inverted pendulum, and the other leg is uh, a regular pendulum. And then, whoops. And then right before heel strike, what's going to happen is you'll see uh, an arrow here. Uh, it's not very bright, but there's an arrow that's heading forward and down. And then this is the blown up version of that arrow. And you can see that right at heel strike, there's a reaction force from the ground. And that's going to change the center mass velocity from downward to upward. That change in velocity requires work. Work requires energy. So the amount of negative work that's been done is actually uh, proportional to the square of the size of this force. And then in order to continue walking, you need to put energy back in. And there are lots of choices about how to perform positive work to make up for the negative work. But here's a, here's a good way to do it, which is right before the foot hits the ground, we're going to do something special, which is we're actually going to push off with a trailing leg. I don't know if you can see this arrow. But the idea is that we have a center of mass velocity that is being changed before heel strike even happens. So if we push off, we can actually reduce the, uh, the velocity at which the collision occurs. And then the collision actually is going to be smaller. And as a result, you need to perform less negative work in order to redirect the center of mass. Uh, the analogy I like to give for this is that if you're ever in a uh, tall building riding in the elevator on the upper floors and the cable were to break and you were to go plunging towards the earth, uh, the smart thing to do is right before the elevator hits the ground and kills you, you should jump up with exactly opposite the velocity at which the elevator is hitting the ground. <laughs> and then you'll just walk away uh, completely uninjured. Now, there's some practical reasons why this might not actually work for you. <laughs> but when we're talking about walking, you do have a trailing leg that's able to push against a firm ground. And so you do have the capability of pushing off to reduce the collision that you're going to uh, incur. Okay, so I said that uh, whatever theory we have, we have to test, and, and preferably we test it repeatedly. And I'm going to bore you with a few uh, research results that uh, just our uh, tests that have been performed. We can actually uh, measure uh, the amount of work performed by the two legs in a very simple way, uh, which is called the work performed on the center of mass. And all you need for that is you need to know the ground reaction force, and uh, you, you use the ground reaction force and multiply by the center mass velocity. And what you end up with is the rate of work performed on the center of mass. That's what I'm plotting here, the work, rate of work versus time. 
And then these are the two legs here. And this is the leading leg. And you can see that during the first part of the gait cycle, during double support, there's a large amount of negative work performed by the leading leg. So that's the effect of the collision. You're absorbing energy. And we said that the, the best idea for putting energy back in was to push off right before heel strike. And you can see near the end of the stride uh, that the uh, leg, which is now the leading leg, starts to perform positive work, and then you can actually see that wrap around over here. So this is uh, heel strike again. You, you can see the trailing leg is already performing positive work, and then the positive work actually precedes the negative work by a small amount. So that's an indication that people do indeed push off in a way that seems uh, to be uh, sensible from a mechanical standpoint. Uh, we can make two other predictions. Uh, because the uh, amount of work that you have to perform has to do with redirecting the center mass, the more you redirect the center mass, the more work you have to do. If you take longer steps, your center mass has to move through a, a, a larger uh, range of uh, velocities, directions, and the amount of work that you have to perform increases with step length to the fourth power. If you were to take wider steps, you're also redirecting your center mass from side to side, and the amount of work you have to perform increases with step width raised to the second power. If you are indeed performing work that is increasing with uh, step length to the fourth power, step length to the second power, and muscles are performing that work, we would also expect that the chemical energy that you expend, metabolic energy, would also increase with a rate that's proportional to the, the uh, work rate. So those are two tests we can perform experimentally by having subjects walk at a range of different step length and step widths, keeping their step frequency and other variables constant. So that's what we did, and I'm just showing you all the results here. This is uh, the mechanical rate of work versus step length, rate of work versus step width, and then on the bottom, the same plot except we're, uh, we're plotting metabolic power. And the quick lesson is that the rate of work increases with step length to the fourth power for longer steps and step length to the second power for wider steps, uh, and then the metabolic rate increases in proportion to those increases. So that seems to indicate that, um, that these um, collisions and the, the work that you perform seem to indeed play a large role in how much work the muscles have to perform and how much energy the muscles consume. Uh, we've lumped this whole idea of collisions and pushing off into a single term that we call the step-to-step -step transition. Okay, so, so far the theory seems to indicate something uh, that we can uh, test with experiments, and those experiments support the hypotheses so far. Uh, these are just uh, a couple uh, examples of some robots that have been built that also demonstrate these principles. So this is a robot that uh, uh, has free joints, so the knees are uh, largely unactuated, and then it just has some artificial muscles that are uh, acting about the hip. And then this is a uh, another robot that has free joints, but it actually pushes off about the ankles. So the first one is powered at the hip, and it's quite—it's uh, been found to be quite reliable. The other one is actually powered by push-off, and as far as we know, we believe this to be the most economical walking robot uh, thus uh, developed. And the idea for both of these is—it's is, uh, recognized that collisions are the primarily primary energy loss.
Okay, so that, that's some basic ideas about the mechanics of walking. Uh, these same models of dynamic walking also tell us something about stability. And uh, the idea here is that we believe that the dynamics of the legs actually are helpful for promoting stability in the fore-aft direction, but the lateral direction seems to remain unstable from the mechanics, and it requires more intervention from the nervous system. So we believe passive dynamics can stabilize. This uh, video that I showed you from the beginning, this system is stable in the sense that uh, whatever imperfections there are in the ground or small perturbations don't cause it to fall over. Small, small perturbations have a tendency to, to be dissipated just from the motion of the legs. We can understand it uh, in this way. So normally your center of mass is moving up and down in an arc. And uh, if you plot the leg angle versus time, uh, the way the legs move are in such a way that uh, this is the angle between the legs in blue here, that that angle increases and then it starts to level off so that it actually matches the motion of the stance leg uh, roughly before heel strike occurs. So what that means is that if you were to accidentally hit the ground sooner than you expected, your step length is uh, about constant. The step length is about is the distance between these two lines. And because these two lines are facing in the same direction, uh, the, the step length is relatively insensitive to when uh, heel strike occurs. And the result of that is by having a relatively constant step length, even if you have a small perturbation, you're going to hit the ground sooner with a, about the same step length. That The higher speed of your collision is going to cause you to uh, dissipate more energy. And what's going to happen is if a perturbation added energy to your body, your collision is automatically going to tend to uh, dissipate that energy without you having to do much uh, control. So collisions seem to help to stabilize the walking motion just from the natural motion of the legs. Uh, we developed a, uh, a very simple model of dynamic walking where we included uh, motion in the sideways direction. And we found that uh, we retained the stability in the fore-aft direction that you saw in the, uh, in the previous video. But we, we found that when you allow the system to fall over sideways, it does fall over sideways. So the same, same dynamics that prevent falling in the forward direction don't help in the sideways direction at all. So this is unstable. And then this is a video. Well, if, maybe if I back it up. Oh, there we go. Um, this is a video that just shows that if you start the model off walking, it has a tendency to fall again in very few steps. And the solution for this problem is, of course, you do have a nervous system and you do perform control during walking. And uh, this is a case where it's necessary to perform control uh, to adjust lateral foot placement. When you add lateral foot placement, the walking motion is uh, stabilized. And uh, of course, our everyday experience with walking is that we don't fall over all the time. So we believe that this is a place where active control is necessary. Active control depends on sensing. And that gives us an opportunity to test this idea. And what, the way we can do that is if we remove some sensory information, we would expect that it would be more difficult to stabilize and the ramification of that should be greater 
variability of our steps in the lateral direction. But we don't necessarily expect any change in the fore-aft variability because we don't really need very much sensory information because the dynamics take care of the stabilization themselves. So we tested this by measuring uh, foot placement variability over hundreds of steps of overground walking. And uh, we found that normally the lateral variability is greater than the fore-aft variability. And we believe that's because of the constant adjustments that are made to, uh, to control balance. But we can also remove sensory information just by having people walk with their eyes closed. And what we found is that the uh, variability of our steps increased a great deal, especially in the lateral direction. In fact, there was a very small increase in the fore-aft direction. This is, uh, on the right here, this shows you the change in step variability with eyes closed. And uh, what you see is a large increase in, in lateral variability and a very small increase in fore-aft variability. So that also seems to support our, uh, our prediction that walking is passively unstable in the lateral direction and stable in the fore-aft direction. And then this is also indication that sensors are used to control that lateral balance. Okay, so we have these two ideas, and again, our theory is able to make some predictions, and then it's important to perform experiments to test those predictions. So we've talked a little bit about the control of walking, and we believe that a lateral foot placement is used to control lateral balance, and then sensors are very important for that uh, control. So now let's try to talk about some possible clinical applications. I'm going to talk about uh, two very briefly. One of them is a prosthetic foot that we're trying to develop, and then another is possible applications for lateral stabilization. Uh, it's well recognized that uh, lower limb amputees expend more energy to walk than uh, intact individuals. Uh, you hear a variety of numbers, uh, but a, a fairly consistent number is at least 30% more costly to walk uh, with a prosthesis. We believe that one of the problems for a, a lower limb amputee is an inability to push off actively with the ankle. So our idea was to uh, develop a device that we call controlled energy storage and release. And I can just show you a movie to indicate that. The idea is that we have a prosthetic foot where uh, we have a spring that's going to store energy, and a latch captures that energy. And then we're going to hold on to, to the energy until it's time to push off. And then we have a special mechanism that releases the spring so that it actually pushes off with the forefoot. Uh, what you're seeing here is a uh, prototype prosthetic foot, and it's actually being worn with a prosthesis simulator by uh, an intact individual. So this allows us to compare, uh, in the same subject, normal walking with uh, ampu uh, simulated amputee walking. So the idea is that we're actually taking the energy which is normally thrown away by the collision. Uh, we have a special device that's capturing that, and then we're using that to artificially supply some of the push-off that, uh, that an amputee would be missing. Uh, and we've tested this on, uh, on intact individuals and compared that against a conventional prosthetic foot, the uh, satch foot. And our, here are the results. Uh, so here's the uh, push-off work that's performed on the center of mass. In intact individuals, uh, you perform a great deal of push-off with each step. And wearing a uh, satch, a conventional prosthetic foot, there's a, a large uh, decrease in how much push-off can be performed because there's no, 
and no ability to, to use the ankle actively. So that's about a 38% decrease in work. And with our controlled energy storage foot, we found a, uh, that we cut that penalty roughly in half. We also measured the um, metabolic rate, and uh, here are the, the results. Intact conventional foot and the uh, uh, controlled energy storage foot. Now I'm just going to zoom in on the differences there. And so intact is a zero difference from intact and about a 30% increase with the conventional foot, and then again with the uh, controlled energy storage foot, we're cutting that penalty roughly in half. So again, we, we think that collisions are an important part of walking, and then this is an artificial way to attempt to harness those collisions. Uh, so we haven't removed the energetic penalty of walking with a prosthetic foot, but we do seem to have an ability to at least reduce that penalty. Uh, we are currently working with uh, the Rehab R&D Center at the Seattle Veterans Affairs uh, Medical Center to test this foot on amputees, and we're also developing uh, other prototypes that are lighter, more compact, and closer to the shape of a, a human foot. Uh, we also talked about stability, and uh, one uh, result that we've learned from stability is that if people are unstable laterally, they may have to use active control in order to uh, stabilize themselves. And we've tested this with healthy normals by adding what we call external lateral stabilization. It's walking on a treadmill with these bungee cords that go far off to the sides. And we found that with those bungee cords to help stabilize the person, we found that subjects walk with much lower step width variability and uh, even a lower energetic cost. And the question then is, does this have any applications to other people? And uh, one possibility is that there may be patients who have difficulty balancing, and uh, perhaps with a bit, little bit of assistance from lateral stabilization, they may be able to uh, stabilize themselves better and perhaps get more uh, training time on the treadmill. And uh, we have some colleagues at Michigan, Bev Ulrich and her student, uh, C.L. Chang, who tested uh, this idea in uh, patients with spina bifida. So again, this is lateral stabilization with these bungee cords going off to the sides, and they found that uh, their patients walked with 20% narrower steps and 25% lower energy expenditure. So this may be a way, uh, it's a little bit analogous to partial body weight support, but instead of supporting the body vertically, you can support it laterally, and then you can still get some energetic and stability benefits. Okay, so let's just summarize here. Uh, we talked a little bit about the mechanics of walking, and we said that uh, collisions seem to be a big part of uh, the energy dissipation of walking. You should push off before heel strike uh, in order to reduce that energy expenditure. We said that as far as stability goes, the fore-aft direction seems to have some degree of passive stability, whereas the lateral direction seems to be uh, unstable. And then we talked about some possible clinical applications, such as uh, potential for prosthetic feet or artificial lateral stabilization. Now, again, I, I want to emphasize that really our approach has been to be talking about basic research, and uh, we know very little about, uh, or I know very little about uh, what the needs are in rehabilitation. So. As far as clinical applications go, all I can do is offer some ideas, and then uh, I hope that we will eventually find some 
useful clinical applications for these ideas. Thank you. Thanks very much. I think we're very impressed with your clinical applications, although you might not say so. Um, we have time just for a few questions here for Dr. Koh. And there is a microphone in the middle there, or questions from the panel as well. Uh, I'll repeat it. The, the question was the external lateral stabilization, how could that be applied clinically? And I have to... Uh, to say that I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I could imagine that there are patients who, uh, who need to do therapy. They need to strengthen their uh, limbs, and uh, they need time to do that. And perhaps they're unsteady and uh, could use a little bit of assistance. Now, I'm, I'm not a a believer in a, a giving assistance that somebody becomes dependent on. So any uh, stabilization like this has to be used in the right way so that it, it doesn't actually teach somebody not to balance. Uh, but uh, I, I think I'll defer to my panel later on, uh, and perhaps when we have the panel discussion, if there are any ideas on how it could be applied clinically, uh, the other panelists could answer. In your collaboration with the VA, have you looked at any of the energy storing feet that are per currently available prosthetically, such as the uh, flex foot or their derivatives? Uh, yes. Well, uh, the uh, group that we work with has actually studied those the dynamic elastic uh, return feet extensively. Uh, the results uh, across the literature are that it doesn't matter what type of conventional prosthetic foot you use, a satch foot, a flex foot, uh, uh, any of the feet, the energetic uh, expenditure for all of those feet is the same, which is a little bit disappointing. Uh, I do think the, uh, the energy storing feet that are already available do improve comfort, but they don't seem to improve energy expenditure. I just want to jump in for a minute and remind that this is, the session is being recorded. Hi, Pam Duncan from Duke University. So, um, in that was an outstanding presentation. Thank you very much. And I think all of us can take away a lot of incredible clinical implications for what you said. So I want to ask you or maybe the panel a question. It seems to me that in that uh, very, very clear presentation that a key to gait rehabilitation really is the push-off. And that that seems to be the trigger for a lot of our energy conception and ability to control that collision. But let's pause for a minute and think about this big emergence of technology and robotics that are going on uh, and exoskeletons, and they don't seem to provide that push-off. So how do you interpret or how do we design the next robotic aids that will give us that push-off? That's one question. And then the second question is that we seem to have a real appreciation now that Gate speed and, and getting a certain gate speed in training is extremely important in stride length, which is so different than the way we've been training in the past, that that would also be the trigger, that we would get the right stride length and the right gate speed in the context of training. Could you maybe address those two questions? Uh, 
Well, the first one had to do with uh, robotic exoskeletons and uh, push-off. And I think that's a, a very difficult problem. Uh, and uh, I don't want to get too technical here, but one of the, the really difficult things that the exoskeleton people have to contend with is that they're putting a device around the limbs that's uh, trying to assist the limbs, but the device itself doesn't really know what it's supposed to do. So it's sensing the limb motion, and then it's trying to add something to that motion. And the problem is that uh, the device itself, its tendency is going to be to resist the person's motion. And so you need to sense what the person is doing, and then you need to actuate a, a motor or something to move opposite to the direction that the device normally wants to resist in order to provide assistance. And that tends to cause an instability. And so uh, it's very difficult to, to develop a control system for that such that it doesn't end up fighting the, the person all the time. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to defer on the second question until later uh, because I think we're yeah. uh, One last question. Hey, nice presentation again, Art. I just want to um, get your take on if it's always that we're going to have an unstable system if we have more variability within the walking pattern. I give like you two examples, or three examples actually. Um, we've done comparative experiments with penguins, and what we find is that they have a very consistent type of a, of a stepping pattern. Yet we know we look at the frontal plane dynamics there, they look very awkward. We have also have a poster here where we looked at cerebral palsy walking dynamics with the step width variability, and we find that they're very consistent, yet we would all agree that they're not having a stable type of a, of a walking pattern. Additionally, if you try to build like a passive walking model or a, a robot itself, you would know that you want to make the splay angle as wide as possible. That will improve the, the stability in the frontal plane dynamics. So how can this always fit, or how can this be applied clinically? <laughs> Well, again, I'm, I'm going to have to plead some incompetence on uh, on the clinical matter. But uh, as far as step width goes, I would say that generally there are some advantages uh, as, as far as stability goes to taking wider steps. But there are also some disadvantages energetically. And so there could be a trade-off between taking wide steps for stability and taking narrow step, narrower steps for uh, energy expenditure. Another question here. I think I made a comment. Apparently, have you heard about the stretch characteristics of tendons? I'm sorry, the... the in the last 10 years, people have been worrying about the where they push off from. It, 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 they've done ultrasound... And All ultrasound, right, yes. And that shows that the Achilles tendon is stretched and the muscle function is isometric. And it's working against the falling body weight. And so what you have, you, you, you don't want a collision. That's harder than the joints. Yes. But the, the tendon is, is accumulating tension, energy, during internal stance when the body's rolling forward over the foot. And it creates a passive push-off or re elastic recoil of the tendon. Yes. So the engineer and I are happy now. We've been fighting for 40 years. Right. So uh, Dr. Perry is re referring to energy storage that occurs before push-off in the Achilles tendon. And uh, in the, uh, I, I don't want to bring up the plot again, but I showed you a plot of the center mass work rate versus time. And before push-off occurs, the center mass work rate is actually negative, and that's an indication of that uh, energy storage. And so we are a big believer that that energy storage is happening, and it's extremely helpful. But also that 
energy storage doesn't appear to be returned 90% or at 100%. So there's some loss, and then you, uh, we believe that work is still necessary actively to in order to perform the, the push-off. I think you'd like to avoid the collision. It's hard on our city. The car, our car is not tolerate collision. Because it can't heal itself. Right. Thanks very much, Art. Our second speaker that I'd like to introduce is Dr. Sarah Mulroy, who is the director of the Pathokinesiology Lab at the Rancho Los Amigos National Rehab Center and also has an adjunct appointment in the Department of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California. Her research includes uh, gait and shoulder function and neurological conditions, and she's played a key role in several multi-site research projects, including the PD Clinical Research Network, STOMPS, a trial on shoulder strengthening and spinal cord injury, and being part of the STEPS trial, which is a rehab trial with stroke. So please welcome Dr. Sarah Mulroy. Good morning. Thank you all. Um, I'd like to start out by thanking Becky Craig for her support of the series and for connecting me with Janice Ng, who's been just a fantastic partner both in the planning and executing. I also want to thank Jan Reynolds and editorial staff of the journal for all their help in guiding us through the process. <coughs> and finally, I'd like to thank all of the authors for being so willing to contribute their work to the series. So Dr. Perry has had a tremendous impact on the profession of physical therapy and rehabilitation in general, but she has also been an outstanding mentor to me. And so a series of papers on GATE was the best way I could think of to thank her for that. So the study that I'll be talking about today was part of the Physical Therapy Clinical Research Network that was funded by the Foundation for Physical Therapy and awarded to USC with Carolee Winstein as the principal investigator. And STEPS, or Strength Training Effectiveness Post-Stroke, was one of four clinical trials, and it was designed to test various interventions and their effectiveness at improving walking in patients after stroke. So Dave Brown was the leader of the STEPS team, and it was a multi-site clinical trial, so intervention occurred at USC, Northwestern, and at Rancho. We had a large cadre of evaluation and intervention therapists that were led by Tara Klassen, who was the project coordinator. And the Gates study that I'm going to be talking about today was part of her master's project. So just in brief, this is an outline of the STEPS process. So once subjects were entered into the study, they were then stratified by their initial walking speed so that when they were randomized into the four intervention groups, there would be generally an equal representation of both slow and fast walkers. So after randomization, we took five subjects from each of the four intervention groups at the California sites and asked them to participate in the gait analysis part of the study. And so we uh, conducted a uh, gait analysis one week before the beginning of the intervention and in the week following the last treatment session. So STEPS had four different intervention groups, and each group was comprised of two twice-weekly programs. 
And so STEPS was designed to answer two primary research questions. The first question was a direct comparison of an intervention that included a task-specific form of locomotor training with bodyweight-supported treadmill training. And that was compared directly to a form of lower-extremity weight-bearing cycling. And both of these intervention groups were paired with a low-intensity arm ergometry that was designed really to have minimal impact on walking function. So then the second question that STEPS was designed to answer was if you added a form of lower extremity exercise, strengthening exercise, to the treadmill training program, could you see a further increase in walking function? And so the body weight treadmill training group was paired with two forms of lower extremity exercise. First was the leg cycling, and then second was a form of muscle-specific training, which used progressive resistive exercises to strengthen those muscles that had been identified as weak through the clinical exam. So the gait analysis was a pretty typical procedures. Uh, we asked subjects to walk at their customary walking pace and allowed them to use their um, assistive devices, but we asked them not to use any uh, lower extremity orthoses so that it wouldn't block any potential kinematic or kinetic changes uh, at the ankle joint. Uh, we used foot switches to record the spatial temporal characteristics uh, recorded the joint motion of the paretic lower extremity with the Vicon motion analysis system, and then recorded the ground reaction forces with uh, a force plate that was embedded in the walkway, and we used that then to calculate the joint moments and powers. We then recorded EMG activity of eight lower extremity muscles using fine wire intramuscular electrodes. And then after the gait analysis session, we recorded the maximal isometric torques of the primary flexor and extensor muscle groups of both the paretic and the non-paretic leg with a biodex dynamometer. So the primary outcome measure for the STEP study in general was the increase in walking speed after the intervention. And so in looking at that first comparison between the treadmill training group and the leg cycling group, there was a clear difference, a greater increase in walking speed for both free and fast walking in favor of the body weight supported treadmill training group, whereas the leg cycling group did not show any uh, significant increases in speed. Now, when you looked at the addition of either of the lower extremity strengthening programs, there was no further increase in walking speed. So what we had were three equivalent groups that included body weight supported treadmill training and one group that had lower extremity cycling that had minimal impact on short-term walking speed. So when we went to analyze the data for the gait analysis study, we decided to include only those subjects in, that it had participated in one of the three body weight treadmill training intervention groups. So as with any or many uh, rehabilitation interventions, there were a range of responses, with some patients improving more than others and some patients not improving at all. And so one of our aims for this study was to try and identify if there were specific patient characteristics that could predict who had a strong response to the intervention. Secondly, we wanted to know for those subjects that increased their gait speed, what was it about their, their gait parameters that changed? And was that due to an increase in muscle activation or increased muscle strength? So we had some help from the literature. 
We knew some information about the short-term effects of body weight-supported treadmill training on walking in patients with stroke. Uh, and compared to overground walking, we knew that there was an increased symmetry between the two legs and increased hip extension during single-limb stance, and that the partial support of body weight actually reduced the intensity of gastrocnemius. We also knew that as you increase speed during the treadmill training, that there were further increases in activation of this level of activity of the stance phase muscles. The other piece of information that we had was that individuals, um, both able-bodied and those post-stroke, increased their velocity in the short term from free to fast walking by increasing power generation at both the ankle and the hip joints, and primarily in that transition from stance to swing. So our hypotheses were that those individuals who demonstrated clear improvements in their walking speed with the intervention would show improved kinematics and kinetics in the terminal stance pre-swing phases of gait at both the hip and the ankle joints, and that this would be accomplished by increases in EMG intensity for the ankle plantar flexors and the hip flexor and extensor muscles, and also by increases in maximal torques for the paretic hip flexors and plantar flexor muscle groups. So we set the threshold between a high and a low response to the intervention and an increase in free walking speed of 0.08 meters per second. And this was based on several studies in the literature that had identified a minimal detectable change in walking speed for subjects with stroke. So use of this threshold placed seven of our 15 subjects in the high response group and eight in the low response group. So we used independent t-tests to compare baseline patient subject characteristics and a repeated measures ANOVA design to look at the interaction between subject group and change in the gate parameters. So essentially we were asking, was there a difference between the two groups in how the gate parameters changed? And we used a similar analysis to look uh, at the lower extremity strength measures and maximal EMG activation. So of all the baseline characteristics, only the lower extremity Fugelmeyer score was significantly different between the two groups. So those subjects in the high response group had a mean Fugelmeyer of 28.7, and in the low response group, the mean was 25.3. All of the other patient characteristics were very similar uh, between the two groups, with the exception of baseline walking speed, which was faster in the high response group, but this was not consistent enough to be even near statistical significance. So this is a plot of the change in walking speed with the, with the intervention here on the y-axis. And it's plotted first against their baseline walking speed on the left and their baseline Fugelmeyer score on the right. And so then this black line is the threshold that divides the improvement in walking speed between the high and low response group. So these seven high-response subjects had an average increase in walking velocity of 0.153 meters per second. And you can see there was a range from 0.09 to 0.233 meters per second. For the eight subjects in the low-response group, there was on average a small increase in walking speed of uh, 0.017. There was only one subject who actually had a decline in walking speed, and the highest increase in this group was 0.06 meters per second. 
Now, you can see that there's two subjects in the low response group that had initially pretty fast baseline walking speeds, but they made no improvement in their walking speed with the intervention. At, these two individuals had relatively low Fugelmeyer scores, and this suggests that they had achieved their baseline speeds through substitution mechanisms, but had, further, had limited capacity for further improvements. So for the subjects in the high response group, they achieved their increase in walking speed through, through increases in both cadence as well as stride length. So most of the, the kinematic and kinetic changes occurred at the hip joint. And this is a plot of both the high and low response groups with the high response data in blue and that of the low response subjects in orange. And the light shaded graphs are in, are the pre-intervention data and the darker lines are the post-intervention data. So what you can see here is there was a significant increase in hip extension angle for the high response subjects when compared to a small decline in hip extension for the low response group. There was also a significant increase in hip flexor power generation in pre-swing for the high-response subjects. Now, the increase in the hip extension angle in terminal stance for the high-response subjects was accomplished primarily through a decrease in the anterior pelvic tilt angle. And this is a plot of the sagittal plane kinematics of a single subject in the high-response group that illustrates this. So this is the hip extension plot, and you can see there's a pretty good increase in hip extension from pre- to post-intervention, whereas the thigh extension is much less, but there is a decrease in the anterior pelvic tilt. The changes that occurred at the ankle joint were less apparent than those at the hip. Subjects in the high-response group had an increase of plantar flexion of four degrees in pre-swing compared to no change in the low-response group. Now, this difference uh, was not large enough to reach statistical significance, but the large effect size of 0.97 indicates that if we had had a larger sample, that it would likely be significant. And there was also a similar outcome here for ankle plantar flexure power generation and pre-swing. So those subjects in the high response group did show an increase when compared to the low response group, but of a smaller magnitude. <clears throat> so of all the muscles that we looked at, only soleus had a difference in response to the intervention between the two groups. So for subjects in the high response group, they demonstrated on average an increase in intensity of activation of 13% of maximal level throughout the gait cycle, while those in the low response group had no change in their soleus activation levels. A semimembranosis was the only muscle that demonstrated a change in ability to maximally activate that muscle, and that occurred in both the high and low response subjects with greater activation after the intervention. And there was also an increase in activation of semimembranosis as a percentage of the maximal level in both the high and low response groups um, it, during walking. But if you look at the plots, you can see for the high response subjects that the primary increase in intensity occurred during that period of normal activation for semimembranosis from mid-swing through loading response, whereas the low response subjects just had a general increase in intensity throughout the gait cycle.
In general, there were very few increases in muscle strength with the intervention, but there was a significantly greater increase in knee flexion torque of the paretic limb for the high-response subjects compared to the low-response group. And there was a trend for the opposite uh, result for hip flexion uh, for the paretic leg, with the low-response subjects demonstrating an increase. So for the high-response group, we had an increase in knee flexion torque in the paretic limb, but no change in the hip extension torque. Well, there are several muscle groups that contribute to generating isolated knee flexion in sitting, but the hamstrings muscle group as a whole is the primary contributor and makes up approximately two-thirds of the total uh, torque production. Whereas the setup for testing hip extension with the Biodex dynamometer only allows the resistance cuff to be placed proximal to the knee, so likely our hip extension torques reflected primarily the contributions of the single joint hip extensors. But these strength results are consistent with those of the overall step study as a whole, which found limited increases in muscle strength and primarily for the paretic flexors, and they were limited to those two groups that were paired with the upper extremity arm ergometry, so not in the groups that had focused exercise for the lower extremity. So essentially what this means is that increases in muscle strength were really not the story behind the increases in walking speed. So to summarize our findings, we found that those subjects who demonstrated a strong response to the intervention had improved mechanics at the hip to a greater extent than the ankle, and that there seemed to be a threshold of preserved motor function as measured by the Fugelmeyer test required for an optimal response to the intervention. We found increases in muscle activation for semimembranosus and soleus, but not of a hip flexor muscle. So now if you take these results and put them together with what we knew from the literature about how individuals increase their speed in the short term, I think you can really get a compelling picture of how these two groups responded differently to the intervention. So the study by Yonkers and colleagues uh, took a group of stroke patients and divided them into high and low functioning groups based on their free walking speed. Uh, and asked them to, to, walk, to change their walking from free to fast. So those subjects who initially had higher walking speeds increased their velocity by increasing power generation at both the hip and the ankle joint, but relied on increases at the hip to a greater extent than the ankle compared to a group of able-bodied subjects. Whereas those subjects with slower initial walking velocity were able to increase their velocity for fast walking, but they did so uh, not through any increase in power generation in their paretic limb, but by further increasing the power generation in the non-paretic limb. So during the treadmill training program of steps, it was conducted at speeds that were at a much higher velocity than the subject's initial baseline walking speed. So those individuals who had the capacity to increase their muscle activation, and particularly of soleus, did so and generated increased power generation on their paretic limb. And they received repeated practice at activating their muscles at a higher intensity and more rapidly than they had been doing during their customary overground walking. And over time, this translated into a long-term change and an increase in their overground walking speed. Whereas 
those subjects who had lower initial motor function likely were able to achieve those faster walking speeds during the treadmill training program by further relying on their uh, non-paretic extremity. And while that may have been sufficient to increase walking speeds in the short term, it did not result in any clinically meaningful improvement in their overground walking function. So now, soleus was the only muscle that demonstrated a difference in response between the two groups. And this muscle only crosses the ankle. And yet the primary mechanical changes that we saw were at the hip joint. Well, there have been several uh, musculoskeletal model studies that have demonstrated that the function of soleus, in addition to its role at the ankle, also accelerates both the hip and the knee joints into extension during the last half of stance. And so by increasing that hip extension in terminal stance, that would also increase the passive elastic contributions to hip flexor power generation. And so these mechanics are consistent with those that were seen in the high-response subjects. Now, semimembranosis crosses both the ankle, uh, sorry, crosses both the, I'm rewriting anatomy, crosses both <laughs> the, the knee and the hip joints, and its function in gait is primarily to decelerate that forward-moving limb in the second half of swing, and then to provide stability for loading of body weight during the early part of stance, during the collision uh, period. And its attachment to the ischial tuberosity also creates a posterior tilting force on the pelvis. And so this is an example of a subject who was in the, in the low response group. And she um, initially had a Fugelmeyer score of 21. And her increase in walking speed uh, with the intervention was small. Uh, she customarily wore an AFO during community ambulation to support her ankle for swing limb advancement. And her improvements in walking speed with the AFO were somewhat larger, but they were limited primarily to changes at the hip joint. This is an MRI of her stroke lesion. And you can see here, it shows extensive damage to the white matter tracks that extend from both the, the upper and lower extremity motor cortical areas of the brain. And so it's likely that the extent of the lesion in this particular subject limited her ability to have a stronger response, particularly distally, to the intervention. Now, there are several fMRI studies that have documented increases in activation both in subcortical and cortical motor areas that are correlated with the magnitude of increase in walking speed after a program of body weight supported treadmill training. So this is also consistent with the idea of a threshold of preserved motor function being required for an optimal response to the intervention. So now in contrast, this is a subject from the high response group. He initially had a low extremity Fugelmeyer score of 26, and his gait speed improved 0.14 meters per second. So he was pretty average uh, representation of the high response group. He had significant improvement in his soleus activation as well as power generation at both the ankle and the hip joints. So what does all this mean for how we can help our patients clinically? 
Well, I think first of all, we would recommend to train during body weight supported treadmill training at increased walking speeds to facilitate increased muscle activity and more rapid and appropriately phased muscle activation. Secondly, I think we would recommend to emphasize hip extension in terminal stance. And a recent study by Hornby and colleagues identified that there were greater increases in walking speed during treadmill training using manual facilitation as compared to robotic training. And so this suggests that it may be easier to facilitate specific mechanics in the gait cycle manually. Um, now, for the STEP study, a concurrent program of lower extremity strengthening produced no further increases in walking function or even increases in muscle strength. And so this suggests that overtraining may have been an issue with exercise or gait training four times a week. But for subjects with higher initial motor function, you could incorporate a program to um, focus on activation of the calf muscles either before or after a program of body weight supported treadmill training. We would also recommend an exercise program at the paretic hip and for the non-paretic lower extremity, which would be appropriate for all subjects. And we would also recommend supporting of a paretic ankle with an appropriate AFO for optimal community ambulation. And there are multiple limitations to this particular study, but actually the most important caveat that I would like everyone to remember is that this study was conducted with subjects in the chronic post-stroke phase. And they average, I think, about 24 months post-stroke. And in a previous study, we documented that both subjects with low and with high initial function showed significant changes in the subacute phase from one month to six months post-stroke in their ability to activate the soleus and also in their volitional plantar flexion strength. So at this point, it's not known what impact a program of body weight supported treadmill training would have on that nat natural recovery process for higher or lower functioning subjects. So I'd like to conclude by um, looking at our data and it um, told us that both the extent and the mechanisms that underlie the increased walking speed following body weight supported treadmill training were dependent on the severity of initial lower extremity impairment. Those with milder initial impairment increased their gait speed by improving their mechanics at both the hip and the ankle and also muscle activation whereas those with more severe lower extremity motor impairments had small increases in walking function, but possibly through substitution mechanisms involving the proximal hip joint or the non-paretic limb. So finally, I would like to acknowledge my colleagues in the pathokinesiology laboratory and thank you, and I believe I have time to take a couple of questions. Questions, if you could come up to the mic in the middle. Hi, my name's Susan, and I just had a, a question about the AFO. Maybe I just I missed something in that you recommended use of the AFO, yet you did the process without the AFO and you got the soleus coming in more, but the AFO, depending on the kind of AFO, seems to be that it would 
take out any gain that you got there. So did the, the, the gentleman that you showed with the post, I think in the initial thing you said that he was walking without his AFO. Right. Then how did he walk compared here with without the AFO, and then did he go back to use of the AFO? No, that particular person did not wear an AFO at all. Okay. And so there are lots of individuals after stroke that don't require a brace for walking. Uh, but the first lady uh, did need an AFO right. to pick up her foot. So, um, But the other piece of information that wasn't part of this study is that um, an AFO either rigid or with a dorsiflexion stop generally does not decrease intensity of activity of the calf muscles. Uh, now, if a rigid AFO will reduce the intensity of anterior tibialis activity because all it's doing is picking up the foot, um, but it's not enough support to stop or even to reduce the activity of the calf during gait. And it doesn't, I, I, there may be activity there, but it doesn't, I mean, it allows it to use that activity? Um, you know, if it's a rigid brace, there's no motion. But if it's an articulated brace with a stop, there is motion that it's controlling. There's just a mechanical stop at the end. Okay. So, and, and that would kind of go along with what I was thinking, is that we might want to look at the type of AFOs we use so that we could use Absolutely. whatever game we have there. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, my name is Leonard. Uh, first of all, thanks very much to the panel. And um, I'm very flattered just to be able to sit in the same room with Dr. Perry. At a <laughs> Me too. Um, I wonder if some of the improvement in speed that you saw, considering there weren't big changes in strength, um, might be that the patients had an opportunity to learn how to create and then capture the momentum of the swinging leg without worrying about falling over. And then I have a related question, I guess, is you, you, you keep talking about improvements. Um, I wonder if you might consider the improvement in speed the major improvement and the others, it seems like you're implying that a resemblance to normal gait is by definition an improvement. And that seems to me to go against some of the more modern engineering approaches. No, and even I personally don't, don't think that. Um, I do think that the, the primary goal is to improve function. And that's different, a different goal for different patients. Um, but I think the reason that we wanted to do this study is if we have these clinical interventions and we know patients are faster, we just don't know how. That doesn't help us in refining what we do and in understanding and maybe designing interventions that are specifically targeted based on their baseline characteristics. So now with this information as to how different patients respond, we can take that and have a program that is targeted for how they present to us. And, and as far as just learning how to capture the, the oh, momentum, the, do you think that's a big deal? Um, I do think that there is a, a role for the body weight support in addition to the speed. Otherwise, we would just put patients on a treadmill and have them walk really fast. And uh, in overground walking, they're not able to do that. And so the partial support of body weight initially does allow them, along with facilitation of the therapist, to experience those faster speeds and absolutely take advantage of the energetics of a faster swinging leg so that they're not starting and stopping with each individual step. Thank you for your presentation. My question was, um, obviously we're using this as a, as a clinical intervention, body, body weight supported treadmill training. Uh, and we're not, and it seems like the, on this research, it doesn't seem to be 
correlating to overground walking. Um, and so I was wondering clinically, are there long-term implications? Can these benefits be maintained eventually overground? Is this initial is this initial training for using body weight supported? Uh, and basically, when we set up our program, we eventually want to get the patient away from body weight supported treadmill training. And so, what do you, where do you see the future uh, implications for this type of research? That's absolutely very important. And so the gait speeds that we were talking about were overground. They were in the laboratory, which is somewhat an artificial um, situation. But the STEPS trial overall looked at walking speed um, using, a, I think, a stopwatch uh, in the hallway. And they also looked at outcomes at six months post-stroke. And so the improvements in the body weight in walking speed over ground in those three groups were actually maintained at the six-month time period. So that, to us, was very compelling evidence that these were long-term changes that the patients were then able to incorporate into their daily walking activity. Okay, I think at this point we'll move on to our next speaker, so thank you very much. So our third speaker is uh, Dr. Francine Malouin, who is a professor emeritus with the Department of Rehabilitation, Laval University at Quebec, Canada. And I can tell you, although she is emeritus, she's still very active in research. She is a member of CIRIS, which is the Interdisciplinary Research Center in Rehabilitation and Social Integration, and that's where she conducts her research. As a PT by training, her interests have included clinical trials, which have examined training strategies on functional recovery in persons with stroke, as well as cerebral palsy. And currently, she's carrying out research related to the use of virtual reality and mental practice on relearning locomotor type tasks in persons with neurological impairments. So please welcome Dr. Francine Malouin. Thank you, Janice, and uh, I want to thank especially Janice for invitation to this uh, workshop, and I'm very honored to be here to talk in front of Dr. Perry. Uh, let me uh, also uh, <clears throat> acknowledge uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Carol Richards, who has been a co-author on this paper. Well, when I start uh, preparing uh, this talk, <clears throat> of course, we look at the literature and the uh, what is amazing is the amount of information coming out related to motor imagery. And I draw this uh, <clears throat> graph for you. This is the number of paper that, you, that comes out when you say motor imagery in PubMed. You see the large increase in the number of articles with a peak last year with more than 150 papers. So there is a lot of research and it's very exciting to work in this area. Well, today we will touch a part of this information, and I have divided the talk in five parts. We will start with the <clears throat> review of the rationale for using mental practice through motor imagery. First, some definition. Uh, motor imagery is the imagining of actions without their execution, whereas 
mental practice is a training method. It's important that you know that motor imagery is an active process where, where you <clears throat> have to generate an image of the movement you want to imagine, and this is internally reproduced within working memory. When you do <clears throat> mental practice, you repeat or rehearse this imagined movement in order to improve their execution. If we look at the research, much has focused on psychophysical and physiological correlates of motor imagery, and we will see that there is some parallelism, parallelism, it's a very hard word for me, <laughs> existing between mentally simulated and executed actions. For instance, autonomic studies have shown that heart and respiratory rates increase when imagining running, walking fast, or lifting weight. And this slide shows you the increase in respiratory rate during real walking and imagine walking. And you see that as the gait speed increase, there is an increment. Of course, it's always larger during real gait. <clears throat> These slides illustrate um, patterns of activation <clears throat> during uh, walking, real and imagery, imagining walking using near-infrared spectroscopy. With this technique, it's possible to record <coughs> real gait because the electrodes are placed directly on the skull. So even if the head moves, you can still record good information. And as you can see, there is a large overlapping bilateral, bilateral <coughs> activation of the primary sensory motor area in both conditions. <coughs> Finally, what we know, which is very interesting and useful for clinicians, is that there is a very close relationship between the time to imagine a, a task and the time to execute the task. And uh, for the upper limb, we know that if we have a more complicated task, let's say you have to point to a smaller target, it would take more time. So we call that the Fitz law. So is it the same thing for walking? For instance, if you have to walk longer, you have to walk through narrow doors, for instance, you have the same trade-off between speed and <coughs> accuracy. And this has been answered by the city in general in a very nice study. What they did, they had their subjects walking. They were wearing helmets where they could see in 3D uh, targets placed at different distance. And at the end of the, the pathway, there was door uh, with different widths. And what happens here is you have the walking time and you can see as the distance increase, it takes more time, okay? Now, within each condition, you see that if the, the door is narrow, medium, or wide, for each three distance, you have an increment with a narrower door. So it shows you that when you're thinking about a walking task, you have the same uh, rules or principle that you get with the real execution. So, in summary, here we have <clears throat> uh, information that simulated and physically executed locomotor tasks rely on similar motor representation, temporal organization, and activate neural networks. So that gives us some base ground uh, to uh, <clears throat> use motor imagery for training motor skill, locomotor skill. Okay, second part, we will look at um, motor imagery ability. Um, this ability to generate mental image of movement, okay, what we call motor imagery, 
is a prerequisite for mental practice. And uh, we know, and I will show you that in general, I'm sorry about this, I got a cold uh, from up Canada and it's with me since I came down and I, we, we've been landing. Um, <clears throat> it's retained even with chronic stroke and severe motor impairment, but in certain cases, uh, depending on the site of the lesion, disability can be uh, lost. Thus, it's important to have an idea before using mental practice whether a person is able to engage in motor imagery. So it's very difficult to uh, measure what you are thinking, what you are imagining. And uh, this is a complex thing. And the way we approach it in the clinic uh, with our group is to use two we combine two approaches. First, we will use a questionnaire, um, and also we use mental chronometry. Questionnaire is a QVIC, the kinesthetic visual imagery questionnaire that we have developed, which is adapted for persons with limited uh, motor uh, ability. And the procedure, if you are interested, you can uh, get them to this address. This uh, test has been, uh, test retest and validation has been done in a previous study. And uh, the same thing for mental chronometry. We, we show how you can use it, and this has been shown that test retests are highly reliable. <clears throat> okay, I will show you uh, an example with um, the QVIC which uh, has a visual and a kinesthetic scale. Visual scales is the uh, clarity of the uh, image that the person has. It goes from one to five. Five is the highest clarity. And it has 10 movements that are imagined. The maximum would be 50. And the same thing for kinesthetic. It's the intensity of the sensation that the person has when she imagines a, a movement. And you can see for a group of age match healthy subject, age uh, match with um, patients with stroke. So 20, 20, 32 versus 32, uh, you have the left or right uh, hemispheric lesion. And you can see that for the patient, you have the same range of uh, performance, whether you are a stroke or a person without stroke, you have good and bad imagers imagers in, in, in the boat group. So it tells you first that motor imagery is not all or none. There is a, a gradation here. So this is something that we have to know and measure. Now, what happens when you imagine walking or imagine a more complex task like, like the time up and go, where you have to rise, walk, return, and sit down? Is it uh, <clears throat> equivalent? The time to imagine, is it equivalent to the time to execute the task. And this is what we have uh, investigated in 21 uh, persons with a stroke and compared to age match healthy person. What we see here is the total duration of the task. You have imagination and execution, the same thing here for the control group. As you can see, there is no difference between the two conditions, whether you have a CVA or not. And this is what we call a temporal coupling or functional equivalence. So, okay, you will say, that's good. That's the whole task. What happens if you, we break down the time up and go in four subtasks, rising, walking, walking back, and sitting down? This is the duration of each subtask, up here for the stroke, here for the controls. And you can see that 
within each group, you have an equivalence between the imagination and the execution. And if you look at the percentage of time spent for each subtask, it's similar in both groups. So that's very important data that shows us that uh, <clears throat> the ability to rehearse mentally a complex motor task is preserved after a stroke. Now, what can we use uh, also in clinic for walking conditions? Remember when I told, what I told you about the FITS law? Uh, let's say you have a patient, you're not sure they understand what you ask them, you want to see if really imagine walking. You could ask them to walk along different pathways of different length. They should take more time when they imagine a longer pathway. Same thing if you could use a narrower pathway or doors. Likewise, uh, you could ask a patient when they walk at a high, higher speed, you could see a change in their uh, heart rate or respiratory rate. So that's the uh, indirect ways of uh, con uh, making somehow sure that they are imagining something like you want them to imagine. So let's remember that we have good and bad imagers and that uh, we have information that uh, <clears throat> patients in general are able to imagine even more complex tasks. There are not so many studies about walking uh, with uh, mental practice, but I will tell you about three of these studies. <clears throat> uh, the group of uh, Ruth Dickstein and Judy, Judy Deutsch, who is maybe here, uh, they have done a nice, uh, nice work looking at um, first case studies and then a larger study looking at the feasibility of using mental practice to <clears throat> train walking. And I will concentrate on this study. Uh, it's a home-based training program. There were 17 participants with stroke. Training was, made, was conducted at home three times a week for about 20 minutes for six weeks by a physical therapist. <clears throat> and it consists of first some relaxation, explicit information, mental imagery, motor imagery in the third perspective or the first person perspective. And uh, again, there was no physical training, only mental practice. There was baseline assessment um, midterm assessment, and then at the end, and at the follow-up. Uh, so <clears throat> you see several outcomes here with gate speeds, right length, and so on. Now, just for you who maybe want to use mental practice, they explain in this in their paper uh, how you, you you apply this training first. You have to familiar, they show you over the six week how they proceed. And this is a progression, okay? So you start first working in place, isolated place. You, you imagine walking on a flat road with no disturbances. And then you complicate the thing. You, you might focus on push off and uh, then thereafter uh, loading the affected leg and so on. So, if you want to use it, go to that paper and they explain in the appendix uh, lots of these very practical aspects. And they report very nice results. As you can see, the, for the 17 uh, participants, you see the increase, well, baseline in general is very stable, and then you see the increment along the training. 
a post, midterm, and follow up. And you can see that whether you have a low or higher level of gate speed at the beginning, you, you see that they have nice uh, improvement in terms of gate. And this is the mean of the group, baseline, co combined. And already after three weeks, they see a change. Overall, they report 40% increase in gate speed. And for a, a moderate effect size of 0.64, and it's also <coughs> change in stride, stride length, about 18% improvement. And you can see that they have effect uh, uh, size above uh, 0.5 for most of the uh, outcomes. Okay, so it tells us that it's possible, it's feasible to train at home. They have an excellent adherence to therapy. They had uh, sh shown that we can have beneficial task-specific effects on gait in person with chronic stroke. However, as all studies, we, there was no control group. Also, they did not monitor the amount of real walking that the person did. And we know that when we train with mental practice, the person will use more than uh, their, their limbs. So, of course, probably part of the improvement may be related to the fact that the person use more, walk more. But still, we, we, there is an effect related to mental practice. Also, we have to think that you, you want that if you have a home program, that the person doesn't need a PT to visit, so they could use their own uh, training. So this is your job, maybe, when the patient is in the clinic, to teach them how to use mental practice. So when they get home, they can use it. <clears throat> okay, now let's go look uh, quickly at some uh, strategies for, to, to, to promote the relearning of locomotor skills. Okay. I came up with three, three aspects. <coughs> First, the perspective of training. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can imagine a person, another person walking. So we call that external or third person imagery. It involves mainly the, the visual system. And you, you are like a spectator. You see another person walking. You can imagine this person. Or you could use the first person's perspective it's as if you were walking. And, of course, there you are the actor. And what you will see, you will see where you're going, okay? You will see you will have visual cues of your surrounding. If you, if you see part of yourself, you will see the top of your shoes, for instance, or the inside of your hands when you walk. So you, you won't see the same thing. And of course, you will imagine all the uh, kinesthetic information of moving your limbs. Okay, So you, you might be uh, focusing on imagining the push-off or imagining <clears throat> the, taking a step or going around an obstacle. So this involves uh, feeling and seeing. This is much more complete. And in a study where we look at the activation, <clears throat> brain activation during external or third-person imagery versus first-person imagery, you can see that there are more uh, motor-related areas activated during a uh, uh, first-person perspective. So this uh, perspective should be best uh, if you look at these uh, outcomes. Okay, now... If we talk about um, <clears throat> a physical practice and mental practice, um, if we look in the 
clinical uh, situation, how should we proceed? Okay, there are some studies that have shown that you do some physical practice and after that you do only mental practice for 30 minutes. Um, so you, in, in many studies, the amount of training for physical practice and mental practice was not really measured. That, that's one of the limitations of uh, the work done so far. And also, when you want to learn a new task, it, it is uh, perhaps better if you do it physically and then you practice mentally and repeat it physically instead of uh, doing physical the morning and mental the afternoon, okay? So in this pilot study, which has just been published in GNPT, what we want to do is first, it's a small study, of course, but the idea was for the task, rising from a chair and sitting down, what happens if we really control for the physical training and the mental training? So we had three groups. One group who did nothing, just came for the evaluation before, after, and three weeks later. Now, there were two groups who did some physical practice. A mental group who did one physical practice followed by 10 mental practice of rising and sitting. And the other group did the same amount of physical practice followed by cognitive activity who had nothing to do with rising and sitting down. It was mental calculation, scrabble, and different things. Okay, what I'm showing you here is during each session they had 10 blocks. So 10 times one physical practice followed by 10 mental practice. So each session for 12 sessions they did about a total of 120 uh, repetition, both groups, the mental practice and the cognitive groups. But if we look at the mental activities done, total of 12 sessions, uh, they had uh, the mental activities was for the MP group rising and sitting down. They will rehearse mentally. And the other group had about, you see, the same amount of mental uh, activities. So this is to control for the time between each physical contraction, each physical repetition. What we give, what we have here, is this is the cognitive training group, this is the mental practice group, and the no training group. Pre, post, okay, for rising, pre, post, for sitting, and you have the follow-up for these two groups. What you can see is that there is not much change for the no training and the group who did a total of 120 physical repetition when it was followed by mental activities not related to the task. Whereas with this group, you see a significant improvement in both subjects during both tasks, which tells you that what you do after a physical execution, if it's followed by... If after a physical execution it's followed by a mental practice of the, uh, of the task itself, you, you come out with something very different uh, if you rest or do something else between the repetitions. Somehow we, we could talk about primary effects of mental practice. So it is like the mental practice has a preparatory, preparatory effect and enhances the efficacy of subsequent uh, physical training. So. 
it supports the idea that part of the behavioral improvement observed may be latent, waiting to be expressed after minimal practice. It tells you that maybe the patient, when they rest, you could ask them to rehearse mentally. It also tells you that, uh, based on other studies, that if you practice mentally, eventually when you do it physically, the, the, the practice will be more efficient. Teaching motor imagery, well, we think that if the person is um, placed in a position close to that, in the real uh, movement execution, it's best because it provides the visual and, and kinesthetic cues to promote the mental representation of the task. Also, if you combine real movement and imagination, it's easier if you're in the same position. Now, for walking, of course, you cannot put the patient standing, but the closest position would be sitting. Now, it's important to explain to the patient what you expect from them. Okay, explain the internal-external perspective. And the best way to see if the person does what you ask them, uh, you, you have to uh, maybe <clears throat> ask them what they see exactly. Let's say... If you see something from the inside or the outside, it won't be the same thing. So it gives you some hints, okay? You also have to uh, ask them about the clarity and the sensation associated with the task. Also, you have to decide if you do specific or whole task. You have to look at the sequencing of movement for more complex tasks. So you have to take them through it to help them imagine a proper uh, sequence of movement. And don't forget that the best results are when we imagine a successful performance. So they have to imagine, right? Finally, for people with low imagery ability, or not familiar with motor imagery, start by imagine tasks that uh, they do already well. Uh, also think about mode administration. Uh, some use audio tape, and the patient is lying down. Uh, this is, to my finding, too, too passive, and it's dependent on external cues. You can also move towards a self-administration approach uh, where the patient is more active and becomes independent in doing his own uh, training. And you can start first by guiding them, and then they are able to do them by themselves. So they become more auto autonomic. And this is well discussed in the paper of Brown, Clinical Rehabilitation, 2008. Okay, of course, there are many advantages. They are all the list here. Uh, it costs very little. The patient can be is safe, so has a, his autonomy and so on. But it does not replace real practice. So you, you, you don't think to do only that. Uh, some patients do not respond well or they don't have the cognitive level to be able to involve, get involved in this training, and some get bored, and there is a mental fatigue. So this is why you have to start maybe slowly and gradually increase the, the uh, amount of repetition, uh, of mental repetition. Um, of course, we still have a long way to go to really uh, <clears throat> use this approach in the, on a day-to-day -day basis in the, in the clinical setting. And we have to look, uh, uh, again, to control studies, uh, as usual. And maybe we have to learn more about, about the training protocols, perspective, perspective on motor imagery, 
optimal combination of physical and mental repetition? Uh, should we use a more active approach with, versus audio tapes? Uh, what about motor imagery? Or should we screen it, assess, and train it? And I think motor imagery can be trained. And sometimes uh, you might uh, think uh, of combining it with action observation and virtual reality to help the person develop internal operation of movements, of understanding more complex tasks, showing the sequence of a task. Because don't forget that motor imagery works on the aspects of planning of movement, preparatory of preparation of movements. <coughs> And uh, I want to acknowledge the different uh, participants to these uh, studies and the funding agencies for the data that I present to you from our work. And this is what it looks like in Quebec at this time. <laughs> we have made, uh, but we have less snow than in Washington. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thanks very much. So we'll take questions. Takes one. Hi. Hi. I was wondering what should they actually be imaging? Should they be imaging their old gait pattern or their new pathological gait pattern? Okay. Um, that's always the question, How? what should they imagine? As I was saying, the best result, because we, we take a lot of our information from athletes, because athletes have been training with motor imagery for a long, long time. And uh, also from some of the studies in patients, some patients, uh, best results are when they imagine the right pattern. Well, what's right? The right pattern, what is right. Yes. What is right? Yes. What I currently have or what I did before, which I can't yes. ever get back to. Yes. Um, what is right is what they are learning. Let's say that you train the patient as you will train them physically. What do you tell them? How they should do this, how they should do that? So this is what they should uh, develop an internal image of the feeling associated with good movement. The same thing as you do during real uh, training. And this is why you have to take the patient to be their own judge, auto-estimation, did they did it right? Did they imagine it right? So it's think it's a transposition of what you would ask in terms of what you should think about and the prog progression of these images that they develop, as you will do with the physical uh, training. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, I um, was just wondering, you mentioned the virtual reality at the end. And I was just wondering if you know if there's more research being done on that and if they've found anything useful with using virtual reality and the gate training. Uh, virtual reality as training as such or for training motor imagery? I'm sorry, what did you say? Uh, you want me to talk to you about virtual reality for locomotor training? Yeah, yes. And if there's been research on that. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, in our lab we have a system uh, which help us to, uh, we have a platform and a treadmill on a platform and a widescreen projection of different scenes, 3D scenes where the person is emerged during walking. And we've done a study in a person with stroke to help them um, navigate. There's more cognitive, cognitive aspects of training gait knowing when to slow down, 
walk faster to avoid obstacles. And this should be published soon. Uh, but uh, in Montreal also, our, our friends from McGill have a, a system that is similar to us. And I think in the series, there is an article about training gate, uh, if I'm right. And a person is uh, in 3D, and she's walking and shopping. So to do dual tasking. So there are more and more research coming out looking at virtual reality and locomotion training. And you can then use this to make the person aware, more aware of the demands in the real world to prepare them to be able to face the reality. Walking outside, walking around obstacles, walking when people are walking around themselves or going across their pathways and so on. So it's more of the, I would say, uh, navigation skill associated with walking. Because we are at that point now, when the patient goes home, is the person ready to face the uh, demands from the outside world? Uh, when they have to cross the street, are they able to uh, develop the proper strategy to, the, to cross the street? And we had patients that finally, after the training, said, you know, the other day I had to cross the street, and I did not panic. I knew that I could do it, and I followed this lady, and he said, I knew I would have time to go through. Why? Because he practiced in a safe environment, virtual reality. And this is the kind of thing that might help person, the persons with stroke to reinsert re their community. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for the presentation. I'm very interested in the topic. And I wondered if you see a relationship to the research that demonstrates that an external focus of attention leads to better outcome success with an activity, and how you might link your findings associated with mental imagery rehearsal and directing and preparing the individual to rehearse um, in an optimal way. So obviously it's an internal activity that's taking place on, on the uh, mental imagery task. So do you direct them to focus their attention on an external outcome or on maybe the dynamics of the movement that they need to accomplish? Um, can yeah. you kind of merge the, the findings of two different um, areas of study and talk about that a little bit? Well, what we, well, th this is a big challenge to have the person rehearse the task from an internal perspective, uh, using visual cues to, uh, and kinesthetic cues to really reproduce the uh, situation, the real situation. Now, I'm not aware of studies comparing external uh, third-person perspective versus first as such, except that from the studies, brain imaging studies, we know that the areas activated during internal representation are much more close to what happens in the brain during real movement, physical activity itself. That's one thing. And um, uh, I was forgetting what I was going to say. Um, uh, I don't know if I answer your question, but we still have a long way to go. 
I think for some person, it might be useful, perhaps looking at another person walking, to discover different aspects. But then, when they have to rehearse for themselves, they have to recreate this situation and be able to reproduce this within themselves so that they can experience it. But as I was saying, you could use virtual reality to train motor imagery, the development of this inner image, or you can use uh, action observation. That would be a little bit like external or third person perspective, okay, to train. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I'd like to introduce our final speaker, and then again, as I said before, we'll have a panel uh, with our team here, so you may ask additional questions that you may have not gotten in the first round. Dr. Diane Damiano is the Director of Biomechanics of the NIH Clinical Center, and she managed to get out of the snow out of D.C., and as a PT by training, her expertise is in the investigation of both existing and novel rehab approaches in children with cerebral palsy. Dr. Damiano is the past president of the Clinical Gait and Movement Analysis Society, and she's the current president of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. So please welcome her here today. Good morning. I'm very thrilled to be here. Um, I'd like to thank Becky and Jan, and particularly Janice and Sarah, for inviting me to be part of the supplement and to be here today. When I was president of the Gay Society in 2000 is when I actually had the opportunity of giving Dr. Perry the Lifetime Achievement Award. I have just tremendous admiration and um, affection for her. And so it's, it's really wonderful in life when you get to be part of these moments for people that have contributed so much to actually be able to show them in person. So I'm really here today to represent the pediatric side um, of rehabilitation. And I think even though gait is very important in all of rehabilitation, but I think even more so for pediatric therapists. And this little baby with How's My Walking on the diaper, we do care about a lot about the hows of walking in pediatrics. How soon children we can get them to walk, how well they walk, how much they're able to walk during the day, and that, that's very related to how well they walk. And we're more concerned, I think, now we realize that, now that we realize that people with cerebral palsy do not continue walking the way we anticipated throughout their lifespan, that now we really care about what we're doing now to, to, that affects how long they'll be able to walk. So my outline for today is I'm basically going to talk about strategies for improving gait function in cerebral palsy. I'm going to start with the, the journal article when we looked at the effect of strengthening on kinematics and cerebral palsy. And then I'm going to move on to looking at the efficacy of treadmill training in pediatrics and then just discuss the topic that's been circling around a lot today about device-driven strategies, such as um, devices that use external assistance, not just the locomat, but other um, non-walking devices, looking joint-friendly alternatives to things like treadmills, such as ellipticals, and talk just a little uh, bit about video or VR-based exercise applications. So this was the topic of my dissertation, um, and what I did at that point was I was hypothesizing that crouch gait in children with cerebral palsy was due in part to quadriceps weakness, and therefore strengthening would improve knee extension. 
And my thesis committee did not have any physical therapists on it. They were um, engineers and exercise scientists. And they, they didn't know the population. They just thought it was too obvious that if someone's weak and they're sinking down because they're weak and you strengthen them and they get better, they just thought, well, of course that's, you know, that'll, that's what happened. That's, that's natural. That's physiological. But what they didn't know is that, that strengthening was contraindicated in people with brain injuries and that this is something that physical therapists weren't doing. And interestingly, in 1991, there was a consensus conference held at um, the University of Virginia, and it was all the experts of Gate and CP, and Dr. Perry was one of the prominent people there. And the only two PhD students there were um, Scott Delp and myself, um, and it was very interesting to watch. But the consensus on the Crouch Gate section was that the actual causes of Crouch Gate were unknown, but quadriceps weakness was not a factor. So when we, we talk about crouch, we're really talking about two different points in the gait cycle, and one is the amount of knee, so this is the normal knee curve as you um, strike the ground, and someone in crouch has excessive knee flexion at that point, and they also have excessive knee flexion at mid-stance. So there's two different points, and they're going to probably have different causes as well. And I wasn't naive. I knew there were that strengthening. I was looking at that as one possible cause, but I knew there were many other causes of crouch gait. And one can be calf over lengthening, so you sink down at the ankle and your whole extremity sinks down. One is what we call in, in CP apparent equinus when you're up on your toes, but it's really not the ankle that has a problem. It's really that you have a hamstring contracture. Another cause would be a hip flexion contracture that, again, pulls your hip down and your whole lower extremity sinks. And then hamstring spasticity or overactivity. So what happened in my study when I um, strengthened children with crouch gait? Well, we had 14 children. They did six-week program of quadriceps strengthening, progressive resistance training, using ankle weights. All of them got stronger, and there was significant change, mean group change, um, with a handheld dynamometer. And the gait speed did increase nicely at both free and fast speeds, um, mostly in that case due to stride length. The motor function increased significantly, but the amount of change in the gross motor function measure was not clinically significant. And there was a small mean change in knee extension in mid-stance that was not significant, but the biggest change was an increase in knee extension and swing, which was significant, and there was tremendous variability across subjects. So from that study, after thinking about it, we saw this mean improvement, but what, what, did we, what were some of the observations or thoughts from this? Well, what I did realize is that the crouch did not seem to improve that are those patients who already had enough strength to stand on one leg and not sink down. So that wasn't their problem. They were crouching. That was not the reason they were crouching. They, we saw the least improvement if the, if the children had hamstring tightness or excessive dorsiflexion. Again, those other causes that were probably um, least more prominent. We had two children who um, underwent hamstring lengthenings after the strength study. They had no changes during the strength study. But after they had the lengthening, they popped right up. And the surgeon was very impressed with the results. And we start, finally realized that the combination of the two, that one was basically clouding the effect of the strengthening. So again, this is one, strength is the one impairment. We also had children that were using assistive devices. What we didn't do was is to instrument their assistive devices because they might not have been crouching less, but they may not be pressing on their arms as much. They might have had more strength to be able to stand. 
And then this was only a six-week program. How many of us can really change fundamentally anything we do in six weeks? So this is really, it was very short-term. Should the programs last longer? Do we need task-specific practice to try to, for patients to use this strength? Um, but interestingly, we did feel that this had some benefits. The parents reported gains that their children weren't falling less. And some of the children, two of the children in the study, were able to run for the first time after this program. And what we noticed is when we stopped the study, several weeks later, we started getting calls from families saying their children were getting were actually regressing. So again, it was something we realized it needs to be maintained. And it does seem to have some helpful benefits. So I hadn't really revisited this question for, for many years, but um, I got very interested, again, by the work of Scott Delp. And so the study that we did was to look at this question that we wrote the article about, is can hip and knee extensor strengthening improve crouched, not only crouched, but internal rotation, gait, and cerebral palsy? And we know that many children have this type of gait pattern, that the ultimate result is, as these deformities develop, that many of these children will require bony surgery for the rotational abnormalities. Many people lengthen the hamstrings not just to prevent crouch, but also they, they thought they might be able to have some effect on the internal rotation gait because by, meaning, by using um, lengthening the medial hamstrings. But Scott Delp and his colleagues, Allison Arnold and others, have shown that hamstrings aren't short in nearly 50% of those that crouch. They're in an excessive anterior pelvic tilt, so their hamstring length is actually taken up at their pelvis. And if you do a hamstring lengthening, you're unlikely to correct the rotational component, and you actually may worsen the anterior pelvic tilt, increase your hip flexor tightness, and or develop knee hyperextension. And if you do a hamstring lengthening, even if they are short, it will not correct the pattern if weakness is the primary impairment. So these um, engineers suggested that they, what they thought should be done is to strengthen the hip and knee extensors at end range. And this is actually based on some of their muscle modeling work. And this is very interesting. As a physical therapist, we think we understand um, kinesiology and anatomy. But what they did show is that, for example, we think the gluteus maximus is an external, uh, a rotator, I mean, an extensor of the hip and an external rotator of the hip. And that's true in a certain position. But what this shows is as you go into a more of a flexed hip angle, the moment arm switches, or the influence of the moment, actually switches from an external rotation one to an internal rotation. So as you sink into crouch, the gluteus maximus now actually has an extensor and internal rotation moment arm. So he's suggesting that if you did sagittal plane strengthening, it could get people more upright, the gluteus maximus would again be more effective. So we did strengthening in a community-based setting with um, one-on-one therapists using weights. Again, progressive resistance training, but using um, machines more than free weights. And these are the results of the eight children that completed this pilot study, is that what we, sh- what we did show is that we were successfully able to increase their, excuse me, their, both their hip on the top and their knee strength. So anything above the line is an improvement, and we showed both legs. And there was a few that didn't have a large increase in knee strength. And we were really focusing very, very much on the hip extensors as well. But this is a, this is a disturbing result where we, this is a change of knee flexion. And we wanted to decrease the amount of knee flexion, so the two that are circled were actually the two that improved. But the rest, as you could see, either had a worsening of their knee flexion or um, they had no change. 
This is the, the muscle simulation, and I'm not going to show you the animation of it, but this is a, a basically a pre and post on one of the two patients that did improve. And this person had an improvement in their crouch. So if you look at their stance leg, you can appreciate perhaps that it's a little more extended. And also the muscle activation is shown, and red shows greater muscle activation. So they did exhibit a better ability to generate force in their extensors, and they were straighter. But this is that same person. They did not have a change in rotation. They had decreased crouch. But here they are. You can. This is them pre, with a lot of excessive internal rotation gait. And this is them afterwards where you can see they go into more extension at the end of stance, but they still have the same amount of internal rotation. We did have actually one patient that had the results that we um, were hoping for. And this patient, you can see, had a decrease here in um, hip flexion, so they were more extended at the hip in mid-stance. They had a decrease in their knee extent, knee flexion in um, mid-stance, and they had decreased internal rotation. So we looked at these. We tried to look at now take a different tactile, and let's look at some of the individual results here. So we plotted the relationship between change in strength and the change in knee flexion angle during stance. And what we actually saw was the opposite trend of what we anticipated. So as in this group, as they got stronger, they actually um, worsened in their crouch. But there were two that, that got the strongest that actually had positive changes. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. This, we think, is, is probably the key here. What we did in the hip, when we were trying to train the hip extensors, no matter what position you try to train the hip extensors in, you really cannot eliminate um, the hamstrings from, from the equation. So we did, we did recognize that we were going to strengthen the hamstrings. And what that did probably was we had children that got tighter in their hamstrings, and that basically worked against our strengthening program. We also plotted the amount of crouch with the hamstring spasticity, and what we showed is that as they became, as they were more spastic, they had a, um, a worse outcome in the study. So that was a confounding factor. One of Scott's um, PhD students, Kat Steele, has been very interested in this, and she'll probably end up pursuing some aspect of this for her dissertation. What she decided to do, this was very interesting um, to us to look at our individual results, but she wanted more results besides just eight people. And so she wrote to Eek and Unger, who have both done similar studies looking at using strengthening and cerebral palsy to change kinematics. So she is, and she has just um, completed this, this month, where they did a meta-analysis of the three studies with a, now a total end of 33 patients. And what she showed, again, is that all the studies showed exactly the same thing as we did. We had kids that really improved, kids that didn't change, and kids that got worse. And it, uh, it has a broad range of, of outcomes. So we're trying to look now very much like, like Sarah did at her studies, is how can we predict what are the patient factors or what are the factors that may predict better outcomes? And this is what she's identified. If they had less severe hamstring spasticity, if they started off with less severe crouch and they had greater initial muscle strength. So that, and we know that strength is actually very related to their neurological status, so that probably also means that the patients that were stronger probably had better, had less motor control problems. So conclusion from all this, and I think it's, it's become very clear to us that strengthening can help a select group of patients improve 
crouch, but clearly not everyone. And probably more importantly or more worrisome is that we have to be very careful because we actually can make people worse. Okay, so I'm going to move on. I, I have done strengthening studies for many years, and um, but in cerebral palsy, again, strength is one of many impairments. We know that the hallmark of cerebral palsy is actually decreased motor control. So I'm, of course, more interested in things now. Now that we have realized that we actually can alter motor coordination, um, that it's, it's, it's really very exciting, and it should take all of us in new directions. Um, just recently, we published in the Journal of Neurologic PT, Stacey DeYoung and myself, uh, a systematic review on body weight-supported treadmill training in pediatric rehabilitation. And we split it into basically three different groups. The first is was a Down syndrome studies that are very well known. And because they have high level of evidence, randomized controlled trials, that it has been shown to be efficacious in that population to accelerate motor milestones. In pediatric spinal cord injury using um, body weight supported treadmill training has only been published in several small case studies, but they're very dramatic. For example, if you've read the one by Andrew Berman where they had a, a young boy with a spinal cord injury, the way they were able to train him to step so he could actually walk in his kindergarten classroom with a walker but if you sat him on the edge of the table and asked him to extend his knee, he couldn't do it. So very impressive trying to use, um, trying to look at the stepping coordination to promote um, reciprocal steps. In central nervous system disorders, we found 17 studies. There was no randomized control trial. Um, the highest level study was a matched cohort study by Karen Dodd in Australia, and there were seven in each group, and the training group did have increased gait speed. And what we found in this group of studies is that some showed a small positive effect on gait speed and or the, the gross motor function measure walking domain or um, standing domains, but most frequently reported no, um, not significant or uh, equivocal result. And that's just to show you again the randomized trial of treadmill training in infants with Down syndrome, which has huge implications, I think, for, um, for cerebral palsy because it, it really gets at the point where I think we need to be, which is training young children. Um, I know Suzanne Campbell has, has I, don't, I don't know if she's published her study yet, but I'm anxious to see her results from, from her work in infants doing a similar type of study. But in this study, they had 30 infants with Down syndrome. They either did an, an in-home treadmill training um, study where their parents held them, supported over a motorized treadmill, eight minutes per day, um, they did this from the time of independent sitting, and they followed all the infants um, until they were independent walkers. And their results were really their primary outcome was motor milestones, and what the main result here is that the experimental group compared to the control group that did no training actually walked 101 days sooner. And they've been actually even able to push this further by doing a more intense type of training program. So when you look at the results in the, in the group with the CNS disorders, however, it was, it's really hard to make conclusions because there's many intervening things. First of all, the goal of intervention was not consistent across studies. Sometimes people are trying to improve stepping. Sometimes they're trying to improve speed. Sometimes they're trying to use the body weight support to do strengthening. Sometimes it's for task-specific practice to keep practicing the same skill. And sometimes it was for endurance. And the protocols were not standardized across studies, and you can see all the variables there as well. The results here, these are in the activity and participation domain on the left. The first column is the results for studies that just looked at body weight supported training, and the Roman numerals are the strength of the studies, with one being randomized trials and five being case studies. 
The second column shows positive results for um, studies that included other interventions as well as treadmill training. The third column is anecdotal results, no stats saying that it's, it's good. And the last column basically is where they said there was really no change or was inconclusive. So again, results are, are mixed. But the effect sizes for Gatesby, when we were able to combine some of the studies, actually were above the large. So the studies were very small. It does show that treadmill training alone, compared to nothing, has a big effect. We have to be concerned about this, though, because the studies in, in stroke and spinal cord have showed that it's similar to the amount of effect of the same amount of practice over ground. So we've been looking at some alternatives. Um, one of the things that we started with was to use motor-assisted cycling. We did this because body weight support is treadmill training is labor and cost-intensive. It's often center-based. It's difficult for both the therapists and the families. Cycling is something that can be done in the home with little or no assistance, um, or tr you don't need trunk balance, you don't need to be um, transferred. And But we, what we do realize, if people cannot move well on their own, they need some kind of assistance. And this is where I think that, that robotic devices are really incredibly helpful for us. Um, we know that cycling is a form of locomotion, similar in phasing and frequency to walking, and there is evidence of shared neural circuitry. So we did a trial with 10 children with cerebral palsy. We took very involved children in this trial who could just, who could cycle, could barely cycle. And they used a passive cycle that moved them at 50 RPMs. Um, and when they did it for 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Now in this group of patients, we said, we said they could try to cycle with it, but many of them were so, had so, such high spasticity and dystonia that if they tried, um, anything voluntarily, just they froze a cycle and it reversed. So most of them had to be distracted and to just really try to relax and let it cycle them. And I think that's, that's of course a disadvantage. The more you can move with it, the better. Our goal here was to improve coordination. And so what we did was we looked at their active cycling. We had the motor getting them started at five RPMs and then we asked them to try to cycle themselves. And so our primary outcome measure was their cycling cadence, their, their, their own ability to cycle. And what we showed here is that they did improve from pre to post in their cycling cadence. When we asked them to cycle faster, again, very high-tone group, they actually had the largest increase. They doubled their cadence. And it's very similar to what Sarah was saying, is that what we want to be able to do is get these children to walk better because they're cycling. And we saw a small change in cadence during walking, but it really wasn't very much. And in fact, the kids that improved the most cycling seemed to actually be worse walking. So we were concerned about that. Um, and again, we had mixed results here. Most of the children, or at least half of the children, did get better, but um, not everyone, again, responded to this intervention. And I think that was probably due to the, the level. This is a case study, though, of their, well, again, of one of our children who actually did very well. And I think he did well because he actually was able to, to cycle with the, move with the cycle. He had spastic diplegia. He was able to walk with a walker. He had high spasticity, and he had it early in the motion when he went to cycle and when he went to move. He had already had an adapted cycle, but he needed his, his parents to push him, so he couldn't do it very well on his own. And he was able to cycle with a device um, part of the time. So that was, that was very good. I'm going to toggle out of here quickly. Try to get to this. So I'm just going to show you, this is his pre-cycling um, video. We're just asking him to cycle like he's cycling down the street. And he's sitting on a bench and holding on to the cycle. His feet are fixed into foot plates. And you can see he's rocking his pelvis. 
He's moving very slowly. He's getting kind of stuck. And this is him after the program. Oh, actually, this is his, I'm sorry, not positive. This is his fast cycling before the program. So I'm telling him to go faster now. Go as fast as he can. And he's actually having some more problems. So this is his cycling afterwards, after a three-month program. And then when we ask him to go fast now, this is what he's able to do. So again, we were able to change coordination in some of these children. Um, however, we, I was still concerned about the, the, the changes in gait. So we've been interested. We did a, a, a small study this summer looking at this issue of task specificity and thinking, well, maybe we should do something like elliptical training, which seems to be something like upright cycling, right? And what we did is we took um, 10 normal adults. We, they did overground treadmill training, elliptical training, stepping, and cycling. And we used the gait deviation index to see how close or far those things were to normal gait. And the outside of the circle, you see the overground in black, and the red is the treadmill, showing the treadmill is actually very similar in a composite of gait across all the subjects. And elliptical falls somewhere in the middle, a little bit closer to cycling, which is in green. So again, um, we're starting a study with elliptical training. We're going to comparing their gait outcomes to the kids that are also doing cycling in this next study. So just moving to finish up with, talk about this issue of, of mechanical devices. Why should we be trying to use mechanical devices in um, pediatric rehabilitation or all of rehabilitation? The one thing I think that we underplay is optimizing patient and our safety. And what we, as PTs, we don't, our profession has a high rate of injury, um, much higher than nurses. And I think we're almost embarrassed by that because we're the ones that know the biomechanics and we're the ones who know how to lift these people. And Patients are also getting bigger. The obesity is a major problem, and so it's not really safe for people to be trying to, to lift people that have major challenges. What these body weight or exercise devices do is they give a, the, they enable patients to do higher level activities sooner. That enables to get people up that are really hard for us to get them up, and let them go right up to the higher level things with independence and confidence. And there's a great comparative effectiveness study by Susan Horn looking at patients with strokes showing that the first three hours of rehabilitation of PT after a stroke are the most, had the most influence on outcomes and that the best thing you can do in those three first three hours is to have them do the, the highest level thing they can do to get them up right away and get them walking. So there's big, there's big evidence that we should be doing these kinds of things. We need to minimize therapist fatigue and the number of therapists needed. And the patient enables us for the patient to get more practice because if we get tired and can't hold them up anymore, their, their walking practice is done. And it enables better motor control training. You can have people in a body weight supported treadmill and now they can use their arms in a more functional way. Um, they can problem solve and get themselves moving without us pulling on them and, and pulling them up or holding them in unusual ways. This is a zero-G harness. We've just purchased one of these at the NIH. Um, and the vendor is actually here, Joe Heidler, who is a brilliant rehab researcher, has developed this product. And again, you can see from these, his pictures that he gave me is that you can do many different things. You can do overground walking. You can walk on the treadmill. But he also has it so he can program when it, when it kicks in and, and so people can do squat to stand with it. 
and can do many different activities. It's also changed the angle of pull, so it's much more functional. So again, these are things we're, we're getting these wonderful tools that can really um, augment what we're doing. The questions that we're talking about, extra gaming and VR applications. Um, we teach a grant course of, at UVA, and, and a lot of them, a lot of them are physical therapists who come to this grant course. And almost half the people this year were doing some type of study using Dance Dance Revolution or the Wii system or something to look at effectiveness in rehab. And I think these are, these are all you know interesting ideas. Um, and there now are there systems, um, the Karen system, which Carol and Francine have, is a balanced system, but they've also developed a, a specifically a gate system. But we really need to try to figure out why these might work and how to really use these. Um, are they just merely more motivating? Um, and therefore, the patients practice more. And I think in pediatrics, that's hugely important. If we can get kids to see a video game and now they'll, they'll exercise all the time, that's, that's huge. The games are actually very nonspecific. We don't really know, you know, they may be doing multiple things with the patients, but they have levels where people can actually progress um, up to higher levels of physical challenges. But the good thing about VR is it can be very much individually designed. But it's very cost-effective, and I, in some ways it's almost cost-prohibitive. The Karen system is at three-quarters of a million dollars right now. And so that it's very hard for um, many people to, to, to have that investment. And even above that, you basically need a software engineer to develop these customized programs. And we really need to think, or do they offer unique capabilities or challenges not available in less sophisticated devices? So these are things I challenge all the researchers out there to, to work on. So in conclusion, I think what we need and what's very clear in all of our rehab populations is that we need methodologies to start determining more subject-specific interventions. Cerebral palsy is a, a mixture of brain disorders. Some things will work in some children, will not work in others. So we need these large clinical databases. We need the comparative effectiveness studies. And we also need the opposite end of the technology spectrum is this computerized modeling to be able to input the subject's factors and really be able to extract from that what we should, what we should be doing. We don't want to be strengthening someone who it's not going to be effective for. Um, we want to do the, use our time the most wisely we can. And I think we do need to capitalize on technology. The first thing I did when I got to the NIH last year is I hired a robotics person. I'm in the rehab medicine department. We, there was no rehab robotics, and we're designing um, a baby elliptical trainer. We're designing a new device for... Um, helping people, hydraulic device to help people to um, decrease crouch with what it actually is going to aims to do is that it will elevate them with hydraulic and assist them so they can be extended. And every time they start sinking down, they'll get eccentric strengthening. So uh, over time, we want to try to wean people out of crouch, use, again, using the principle of strengthening, but in a different, using an external device that may be more effective. So we need to capitalize on technology, but be critical rather than enamored by them and really um, use them at their maximum benefit. Thank you very much. We have time for a few questions for Diane, if you want to go to the uh, mic in the middle. And then we'll also have uh, general questions and actually some perspectives of where future directions will be from the pa uh, panel. So right now, just specific questions on this talk. Hello. Um, going back to the one study you were talking about with the effects of strengthening um, on kids with CP, how would you define those kids that you think have more severe um, spasticity or less weak 
um, so that we know which ones we should be strengthening and which ones that we should maybe stay away from strengthening. So if they have, I mean, it's pretty obvious if you do an Ashworth or Tardu, if they have high level, have a spastic catch, they have a high degree of spasticity. And they're going to be, so when you go to, to use their overactive hamstrings, they're going to be more likely probably to strengthen their hamstrings or to get more tight. So I think that the kids that have the, the better motor control are the ones that can do it. And I think, um, you know, as physical therapists now that we, we try to stay away from the thought that strengthening a spastic muscle would increase spasticity. So do you think it's just increasing the tightness of the hamstrings, but not really the spasticity of the hamstrings? Um, I, I, I think that what it does is that it, because the hamstrings are going to activate, mm-hmm. since they will not shut off, that they do get stronger. And because of the, when muscles do get stronger, in CP there is an issue of muscle imbalance, and that if you are making that muscle stronger, it's going to be more likely to be in that position, and it's going to get tighter over time. So what do you think about adding maybe an intensive uh, stretching program along with that or even combining Botox injections to the hamstrings before we yes. do these programs so, for these kids? Perfect idea. So the children that have rhizotomy should not have the same issues. That's why strengthening works very, very nicely in that group. Botox is the same thing where I think that if you can, you can quiet that spastic muscle, strengthen its antagonist, um, and that it can make a big, big difference. And I think I have, other people have not shown these, these issues, but when I've strengthened, for example, um, the hip flexors, we, they do get tighter. So you have to be a little bit careful if the muscle is spastic. And so I always strengthen both sides of the joint, and I think that also helps as well. Hi, um, I was very interested in your work with the uh, cycle, with, and that was electrical stimulation to assist? No, that was a motor-assisted cycle. Mm-hmm. There are electrical stimulation cycles. There is a study that's published on that, but we use motor-assist because there are the tolerance for electrical stim in our kids. Okay, and did you find with um, these individuals, after their cycling session, did they tell you anything about their, their muscle tone and whether or not they felt tighter or looser afterwards. Yeah, so they did feel, they did, um, they perceive themselves as feeling looser, and this, the machine actually measures resistance, mm-hmm. and it does, it, we, we log that, and you can show, show it decreasing over time. The effect does not last that long. The, the, probably the most interesting effect is the children in dystonia, where they, I thought the children were very dystonic and very postured, couldn't do it, and what we found was, was very counterintuitive, is that the faster they moved, the more they quieted down. It was almost mm-hmm. like doing deep brain peripherally, deep brain stimulation peripherally, where you overexcited the motor system and it quieted it down. So that's mm-hmm. something else we're, we're trying to explore as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks. So at this time, um, we are going to hear from our panel, but I was just uh, reminded to tell you that this session is being recorded and it will be put together as a podcast and you can go to the PTJ website to see that as well. Now, before we uh, start uh, panel questions from the audience, what I had the uh, panel members think about, and I want them just to very briefly um, tell you, where do they see their field of gate research going in the next 10 years, and where do they think it might be in 10 years? So now we only have one mic, so I mean, I'm not sure if it reaches across, but we'll see if we can do this. So we're going to start, actually, we'll just start from this end with Diane, and if she could just briefly tell us where she thinks in her field of uh, cerebral palsy, where, where it's going in 10 years. So I do believe, I think a lot of it will be very targeted interventions with um, external devices, but, but not full-body external devices. 
I think there's a huge potential for FES um, to either override motor control or to assist motor control. And I think it's going to get, hopefully it'll get younger, that we really need to train people. We need to, to stop waiting for things to tighten and things to get weak. We really need to intervene very early in the, the process. And we're struggling with this right now. We're trying to, we're designing, actually designing an infant study, trying to decide the best way. What we think the best way is is to put children in a pool because there's a neurologist who does this study with rabbits that showed that motion is much more normal in the water, that you can actually, people that have spasticity can do much better. But issues of putting babies in pools, the safety issues are huge. So, but I think that that's where I would like to see things going. Thank you. Well, I think we've heard a lot about where the field of rehabilitation is going in the future, and it does seem like that there will be an increased utilization of both technologies and perhaps some of the innovations we now see in the field of prosthetics will be applied to orthotics, but then also into uh, community-based programs so that our patients are able to continue their rehabilitation after their inpatient stay, and particularly with the shorter lengths of stay that we see. And if we continue to look at um, individually-based responses to interventions, it seems like um, that we're we have more options for those patients with higher functional levels, which is probably not a surprise to most clinicians out there. And so I think we're going to have to try and get creative as to how we can help our lower functioning patients uh, achieve their goals as well. Well, I can see two different ways of looking at the future. First, if we look at mental practice, I think this can be done from very early after stroke. As I was saying, thinking about what you should do, thinking about walking, prepares you eventually based on the Pasquale Leone studies. They've shown that the person who practices mentally before practicing physically take less time and less repetition to get to the same point of those people who have practiced physically. So first step, maybe we should try to figure out some protocols to insert this approach at a very early stage. And as we move on, uh, the patient can eventually learn much more by themselves. Uh, to be able to be self-sufficient in learning uh, mental practice. And, of course, uh, you, you, you also have to think that uh, with progression, when the patient gets better, work fast enough, you have to prepare them to go to the community, to walk in different environment, to be able to cross the streets, and to be able to move around obstacles, and also to develop strategies based on the level of achievement, what they should do. And this is the aspects of cognition that we have maybe to put our effort into now, because we know a lot about how to make them stronger, to make walk them faster, but they have to be able to deal within a certain environment and to know not to panic and to decide what to do. And I think in the future, this is this aspect, using virtual reality or other, other ways, should be more uh, looked into. Thank you. I guess I'll start talking about the basic research side. And I, I guess I would hope that the way the field is moving is 
towards more respect for uh, dynamics of the limbs and uh, less focus on uh, kinematics as uh, sort of goals or inputs. I, I feel like our field has been uh, too keyed on thinking of the the nervous system as trying to produce some kinematics, and I, th I think kinematics are an outcome of uh, what the limbs want to do and what the muscles uh, try to assist them in doing, and I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be changing that focus. Uh, another thing that I'd like to see happening in the basic research side is uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I heard uh, the comment that uh, the, uh, in physical therapy education, there's a need for more critical thinking. Well, I feel like in basic research, there's also a need for more critical thinking. And I, I feel our field has largely lived on constructing elaborate descriptions of what is observed. And those descriptions are treated as fact and then passed on to medical students and physical therapists to memorize. And uh, not necessarily subjected to experimental testing before it appearing in textbooks. So I, I hope that uh, we'll develop a stronger culture of critical thinking and uh, testing and seeking independent uh, ways to confirm uh, what we believe. And then I guess the last thing I would say is I, I am pretty enthusiastic about technology and these devices that we've heard about today. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of promise, not necessarily because of science, but just because the technology is getting cheaper and more accessible. And I, I think uh, maybe I wouldn't be looking to the scientists to do the best job with this, but I feel like the video game industry has really got it figured out. They know how to get kids to spend hours and hours doing something, practicing motor skills. And uh, I'm a bit embarrassed as a researcher to, to say that I, I feel like they've got it figured out and we know nothing about how, how to get that motivation. General to any of the panel members, and they can uh, answer them. But if you would like to come up to the mic, please, so we can hear you. Hi, uh, I'm a physical therapist. Uh, sorry about my voice, everybody. Uh, I'm a physical therapist that works in private private industry for a uh, lower extremity robotics company, and I'm just wondering what um, what ideas you guys have for clinical organizations to evaluate new technologies. So we're all struggling here. I think, yeah, I do think a little different than art that, I mean, I think these are, these are huge collaborations. And I, you know, I work with engineers and I, I would get nowhere without these engineers. So, um, but I think that a lot of this does have to be signed with scientific scrutiny. I think that that's where these things really get into the clinical aspects. I mean, you need to do, just like with drugs, you need to do the clinical trials. You need to see who it works for. You need, basically need to figure out doses. So I think partnerships with businesses and, and, and scientists are perfect. I also think that some of the um, issues that they're currently working on in robotics that will be important are the systems uh, to provide control, different control mechanisms, and how do you uh, both sense the performance of the individual and provide an appropriate level of support um, and to facilitate the intervention. Um, 
and I think that will help then the robotic devices be uh, more effective clinically. Uh, if I can ask a follow-up, I, I guess I, I'm, I was also looking for at the, at the clinical level, there, when we take our device, every place we go has a different way. A, a lot of organizations are starting to form techno new technology committees to evaluate that technology, and, and I guess I just wondered if you guys had any recommendations on the clinical level how, you know, how uh, these organizations should be looking at it, just from a research perspective, uh, you know, uh, just ideas. I think it depends somewhat on the level of testing that's already gone on for the device. So very experimental devices, you couldn't just roll out into the clinic. Uh, they would have to be addressed from a more research perspective. But I know that a lot of rehabilitation facilities are actively engaged in trying, um, not a, a formal research trial, but a, a true clinical trial of various devices. So I think it depends if they're FDA approved or yeah. do you want to? Thank you. My, my question is, is it fair to summarize from what you've taught us today that under normal circumstances, um, ipsilateral ankle propulsion is 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 a critical variable in 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 determining gait, and in the patient population who has good residual motor function following stroke, those people can use a similar motor control strategy for ankle. But what they can't supply with ankle, they supplement with ipsilateral hip flexion. And then for the population with poor residual motor function following stroke, they're using contralateral hip flexion to increase gait speed. Yes? That's a fair uh, su a summary of it. I do think that, um, see, we didn't test the contralateral extremity, so this uh, part I'm taking from what we know in the literature. And even those subjects with mild uh, the faster walkers in that particular study, they did have um, a greater than a greater reliance on the contralateral limb than able-bodied subjects do. So there was some asymmetry still present, but um, I think the answer is yes. And and if we're going to utilize that information in a in an in an application for motor imagery gait retraining for the patients who had high residual motor function. I would then ask them to imagine uh, trying to get ankle propulsion um, and and uh, terminal hip extension in stance phase. So I would include that as a critical element in my imagery from an internal perspective. And for those patients who had poor residual motor function, I would ask them to imagine um, supplementing with hip flexion of the strong side. Eh? I think that sounds reasonable. I think you could also uh, have the higher functioning patients imagine jumping or other activities that might be a high demand stimulus to the calf. Uh, do you want to? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of what they should imagine, I think you're right. But now, before you get to that point, you have to, you have, to have them 
feel it physically so that they can represent this. Because you, you won't know if they uh, imagine the right things. So it's very important that they have the feeling physically before. And, and you can, and you can uh, gauge whether they, they feel they, they could reproduce the proper pattern mentally if they do it physically. And while I have them on a, on, on a treadmill, I can ensure that they get a, a hip extension and terminal stance, but I, I've got to get them to voluntarily try to, to, to push from the ankle in initial swing. I think any way you can have them feel what they should do properly, you do it, whether a treadmill or not, because we don't always need treadmill to, to teach walking. You guys were spectacular. Um, there, there are two kind of points, and I, I don't know how to have you help me think about them. But one is in response to the gentleman that came up and talked about um, how do you test devices in clinics, and you know, it really seems as though we should be thinking about some sort of um, I hate to say FDA, but but similar, how, how are we going to help to ensure uh, introduction of new technology into clinical practice? Is there anything that we should be a part of developing? Um, so that's one thought that I'd like you to comment on. Maybe try that first, and then I'll ask my other one. Does anybody know about it? I mean, I hate regulation, but I, I'm just, I just... I don't know how clinicians are supposed to sort through all of the toys that are available with, in some cases, very little evidence that it's effective, but it sure looks cute, all right? Uh, I don't actually know how the FDA functions, but I, I'm sure that they test it for safety. But I think you're talking about two different issues. Yes. Is it safe versus, and then is it effective? And so I think uh, we probably, as a clinical community need to be involved in both um, yeah. areas. Yeah. And I don't know that there's anything formally organized yeah. at this point. So, Diane, you're not aware of it from the gate. Okay, thank you. I, it's just, it, I think it's something we should think about. And then the other is that the theme, even with art, is classification. You know, that that we have to figure out how to classify patients, which... Carol Richards did in 19, when did it do it? Carol, 79, was, but, but identifying that there are, res, there are certain groups of patients that respond differently and therefore deserve totally different treatment instead of trying to do the same thing. And, and it just comes across, even in the robots, um, looking at, at the need to classify and spend some time with that part so that then we can look at the effectiveness of the intervention with that specific group of patients. Do you agree or am I? Absolutely. Yeah, and Susan Horn's work with, the, she's done now stroke and TBI, she's shown that patient factors have a much bigger influence on outcomes than, than interventions do, which is, again, really makes you think um, carefully. And then what we see in our studies, we just have such small effects and those effects are really hidden by the fact that some people have big effects and some people don't. And that's what we really need to figure out. Hi, Max Kurz, University of Nebraska Medical Center. I have a question for Diane and, and Art could maybe help out with this. Uh, I enjoyed your presentation and you used some uh, musculoskeletal modeling in there. 
And I'm interested to know if you were measuring the spasticity that, w that these uh, patients had um, through a clinical measure or if you were trying to use the actual model that you, that you're, that you, ha that you had. Because geometrically, you can estimate dynamically the amount of spasticity that could inherently be within the movement system. And if that is the case or not, I'm interested in how these models can be used in physical therapy. Or what is their application that they will, they will be used, you know, in the years, that, years to come? Because predominantly these models have been focused on orthopedic interventions, how we're going to change the muscles, and predicting outcomes. And they have not been used in physical therapy. Yeah, so um, it's a very good question, Max. And I think what, what I was waiting for, which is now finally available, but again, it's still very, it takes a lot of um, computer, um, too, it's too intensive computer-wise, is that Scott Delp is now able to do subject-specific modeling, and that's where people are finally getting to. And what that means, instead of trying to look at the normal anatomy and tweak a few muscles and change lengths and stuff like that, what you really need to do is input people's EMG. So you're not putting in spasticity per se, but you're putting in, the, when that person goes to walk, what their activation is. And then you can change those activations. You can simulate a decrease in spasticity, or you can change the muscle lengths and basically see how that person, what is the outcome of that gait pattern. So given that, what, what, where we're moving towards is actually trying to simulate, to take p patients or gait problems, put them in a simulation, and then pre-identify who would do well and then test that assumption where we correct. And so I think with this same group of patients, we could have identified what the limiting factors were. And that's where I think it's exciting. But again, it's not, it's not for the clinician right now. It's for us, you know, is at the more of the um, scientific level, unfortunately. But we'll get there. One more question? One last question. Okay. I want to thank you all very, very much. It's been very insightful. And, um, Going back to Art's presentation, when I picture somebody with um, a paretic gait pattern, I really see their uh, the non-paretic side not propelling very very much forward as well, having a shorter step length. And was curious to think um, about the impact of improving that collision that you spoke about and how that would affect then the paretic side. And if you would choose maybe one side versus the other to work on first in like body weight support treadmill training, if you had any ideas on that. Uh, I don't know very much about hemiparesis, but uh, maybe the analog I can give is uh, a little bit of the work we've done on amputees with the Seattle VA. Uh, so of course it's not the same thing, but uh, you do have an issue where you have an ankle that can't push off. So uh, some of the, the interesting things that we uh, discovered there were that uh, in, in an amputee, it's the uh, it's the affected side that actually is the is where the stance leg moves quickly, and then it's the intact side that's slow. Mm -hmm. That side is slow because the the affected side wasn't able to push off. So then that pendulum has to swing slower. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I could conceive how uh, there might be a similar effect with hemiparesis, mm -hmm. uh, although. I think uh, people, patients have a way of confounding our expectations. Uh, and then uh, another observation that I'll share with you about uh, amputees that we thought was interesting was uh, we relate push-off on one side to the collision on the other side. So you, the more push-off you have on one side, the less collision you'll have on the other side. And uh, there's a, a very high incidence of uh, lower back pain 
and uh, degenerative osteoarthritis in amputees, that uh, the uh, arthritis actually occurs on the intact side. And uh, so we, well, we just submitted an abstract to a, a different conference uh, where we just looked at some data on some uh, amputees, and we found, uh, looking back, there's a correlation between uh, how much push-off they're able to produce from their affected side and the peak ground reaction force that you observe on the intact side. So um, I do think some of these uh, symmetry issues uh, might be spoken to through these these concepts. Uh, oh, can, can I just make a? a Thank you. This is I, I want to respond to a previous question about modeling, and uh, so as a modeler myself, my tendency is not to trust them. So models can give you interesting ideas. And those ideas, I think, is extremely critical for, for them to be tested because, again, patients and just people have a way of confounding our expectations. In the short term, we can make a prediction about what should happen mechanically if all else is equal. But once you do something mechanically to a person, the tendency is for them to figure out a very clever way to overcome whatever restriction you put on them. And then, and that's in the short term. And then over the long term, it's even more complicated because they remodel their uh, motor pattern, the, the muscle remodels, the bone remodels, everything changes. And so I only treat models as ideas, and I would never trust them to make a prediction without uh, testing it. And uh, in closing, I would just like to thank our panel members here and to uh, Dr. Jacqueline Perry for attending this session. Thank you very much. Thank you.